This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. For all its savage cruelty, the violence that broke out so frequently on the open range was usually impersonal. Coldly deliberate action taken in defense of property. It did not generally matter whether the antagonists knew each other. It was what they were, not who they were. That was the reason for the conflict. But if personal or family feelings did get mixed up in a range dispute, the violence turned even more vicious and implacable. So it was with the Arizona's Pleasant Valley War, which for the ferocious tenacity of its combatants was unmatched in the annals of the West. That was a quote from Ogden Tanner, who wrote the text for the Old West series of books by Time Life Books. This particular book that he wrote is called The Ranchers. It covers today's episode of the American Southwest, and that topic today is the Pleasant Valley War. While an entertaining rendering of this story, though, the Old West series of books is not the most accurate version of the true story. That distinction of most accurate must belong to Jinx Pyle's incredibly crafted The Pleasant Valley War, which I'll quote from at length and generously. I know we're in the middle of the Apache Kid series, which gives some added content to the forthcoming quite large Apache series, but this range war in Arizona is important background for an important character in that Apache Kid series. That character, or real-life man, is Sheriff Glenn Reynolds. In order to properly tell the story of his life, I must introduce you to this incredible story of revenge, death, and vigilante justice in Arizona. I hope you enjoy this little detour of history that, while taking place in Apache country, doesn't actually feature any Apaches. That's not quite true. There is a guest appearance by a group of Apaches, and it's an incredible story. Just, I can't wait for everyone to hear this episode. It is fantastic. And I will say one more thing about this episode before we start. It is, without a doubt, the most cinematic and dramatic episode I've done so far. It reads like a miniseries or a long movie. If you're able to, picture along with me the story of the graham Tewksbury feud, or Pleasant Valley Range War of Arizona. The largest, deadliest, most violent range war in American Southwest, or American history, period. By the end of this conflict, that became known as the Pleasant Valley War, or the graham Tewksbury Feud, or the Tonto Basin War. By the end of this vendetta, at least 35 people, but up to 50 human beings, would be killed. And even 50 might be too low. The so-called Pleasant Valley is in Apache country, south of the Mogollon Rim, that place filled with ruins, built by the Salado as they mixed with the fleeing Anasazi from up north, probably. 
regardless. It's a beautiful green, fresh air spot that rests high above the thorny, saguaro-filled valleys below. It's at around 5,000 feet in elevation. Pleasant Valley, the setting for this episode, has been renamed to Young today, which makes sense once you hear about all the unpleasantness that took place in the valley. Although, I did read on Arizona's KJZZ 91.5 website from an article titled Untold Arizona and the Pleasant Valley War, Some Secrets Will Never Be Told by Matthew Casey. I read that the town was truly renamed on account of when they wanted a post office. Pleasant Valley, Arizona was already taken. This quite pleasant valley is southeast of Payson and straight north of the metal mining town that the Apaches called Beshbagoa, but what the White Eyes called Globe. That town I talked about in the last Apache Kid episode. Pleasant Valley is 150 riding miles northeast of Phoenix and 150 riding miles east of the Arizona Territory capital of Prescott. It was deep into the Apache Mountains. It was only a surprising eight miles from the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. It was isolated. It was also quite lush, and it had 50 miles of well-watered meadows. And these well-watered meadows began attracting some ranchers and cattlemen. It was a great place to graze your animals. It was a good hideout for people looking to start over. It was also a dangerous place. Author, historian, and the, quote, Walking Encyclopedia of Information on Events in Gila County, Arizona, unquote, that is, Jinx Pile. I mean, Jinx Pile grew up in the area and is related to people who intimately knew the story. He began writing this history of the Pleasant Valley War in the 1960s. He wrote it down from oral tradition, but was told not to turn in his school paper because it would upset people still alive at the time. He titled his book, The Pleasant Valley War. Straight into the point. I don't even know if there's a the in front of it. It was published in 2013, but again, he began writing it in the 60s as a high school student. It's incredible and thorough, and it made me rewrite dang near this entire episode after I read it. Of course, I read like three sources, wrote the notes for the episode, and then read this book and doubled the length of the episode. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a short little Detour, not an entire episode, but it is, again, one of the best stories I have read about the American Southwest. But anyways, this is how Jinx Pyle describes the Tonto Basin and Pleasant Valley. Through the 1880s, Pleasant Valley and the entire Tonto Basin was also a sanctuary for outlaws. Surrounded by mountain ranges holding deep canyons where men with a price on their head could remain lost from the outside world for years. The basin was a haven for the wanted man, as well as for the still active rustler. God help anyone who followed an outlaw trail into one of those dark canyons. End quote. So that is the setting of this righteous tale of furious vendetta. But our story actually begins in Maine, far from the towering mountains of Apache Country in Arizona. It was there in Maine that the patriarch Tewksbury. James Dunning Tewksbury, or J.D. Tewksbury, he got wind, along with the rest of the country, of California's gold rush in the late 1840s. And quick aside about Tewksbury, the name, that is actually where my grandmother-in-law is from in England. Filled with visions and dreams of striking it rich, 
Tewksbury got on a boat and sailed around the hemisphere to the opposite coast. Once there, and settled, and not striking it rich, J.D. Tewksbury married an Indian woman, a Hoopa Indian woman, from Northern California to be exact. The two would go on to have five children, four boys and one girl. After California, the family would resettle in Nevada, but only briefly. And then, tragedy struck in 1878 when J.D.'s wife died from quick consumption, or a.k.a. tuberculosis. Well, either that or she just didn't want to go to Arizona. I saw both. But in 1878, J.D. Tewksbury and his four sons and one daughter packed up from Nevada and left for Arizona where they heard of a massive silver strike. That strike being in Globe, that metal town, Beshpagoa. Before long, J.D. married another woman in Globe, and the two would continue to raise his youngest, Frank. The daughter, Elvira Tewksbury, she disappears from the story after she marries someone in Phoenix in 1880. Meanwhile, the three eldest Tewksbury sons, Edwin or Ed from now on, John and James Jr. or Jim from now on, so Ed, John, and Jim, they would head north into Pleasant Valley from Globe with a herd of 82 horses. They were one of the first to settle Pleasant Valley. Why horses, though, and not cattle, like everyone else that had moved or was moving into the valley? Here's Jinx Pyle's summation of the Tewksbury's, quote, The Tewksbury brothers were half Indian. They were horsemen, able to live off the land. They wanted to ranch, to prosper, but they were not power-hungry. Their ambitions fell short of empire-building. The brothers were loyal to their friends, dead shots, and possessed hot tempers. They would make furious enemies if crossed. End quote. Loyal and hot-tempered. Furious enemies if crossed. So, quick, quirky information about the Tewksbury's. John would marry his stepsister. His stepsister is the daughter of the woman whom his father, J.D., just married when they moved to Globe. And while that sounds strange at first, it isn't like they were raised together or even knew each other prior to being adults. They didn't know each other prior to the Tewksbury's moving to Globe. And, I reckon, slim pickings in 1880s Arizona, let's be honest. But the years rolled on, and the youngest Frank would move on up to the valley with the rest of his brothers. And the Tewksbury's would increase their lot with 25 heads of cattle, on top of the over 80 horses. Also, J.D. Tewksbury would move with his wife and stepkids up to the valley as well. All the Tewksbury's were now in close proximity to one another. Now, let's fast forward through some Apache raids and shootouts. We'll get to them in the larger Apache series, but let's fast forward to 1882. While in town, buying some supplies, that town being Globe, but while in Globe, Ed Tewksbury met a man who would change his fate forever. That man was Tom Graham. The Graham clan started out in Scotland in 1818 when Samuel Graham was born. He'd marry another Scottish woman, and by 1851 they'd be in Ohio, where they'd have five children. The two important children, Graham children for now, in the beginning of our story are Tom and John Graham. And get ready, there are a lot of Johns in this story. Just like the Tewksbury's, John and Tom Graham had been pulled to the Globe area on account of the mountains of ore. They had three copper mine claims in the hills. But I'm not sure if they ever panned out. And yes, that is where the term panned out comes from. 
I guess he don't pay him for copper. But anyways, long story short, Ed Tewksbury told Graham, why don't you come on up to Pleasant Valley with your newly won herd of cattle and be our neighbor? The grass truly is greener up in the valley. Apparently, in Phoenix, the two Graham brothers had won 62 heads of cattle in a poker game. And here I thought winning an Aston Martin in a poker game was pretty cool. But 62 heads of cattle. They then herded those cattle all the way up from Phoenix through the mountains and thickets and thorns and saguaros and snakes and rocks. They herded them all the way up to Pleasant Valley. And they came to a spot a mile and a half from the Tewksbury's place. Once in Pleasant Valley, the Tewksbury's even helped the Grahams build their cabin. And then right after the cabin was done, the Grahams hired Jim Tewksbury as a cowboy for $50 a month. Not a measly sum. This friendship, it seems, was off to a good start. But there was a slight moral dilemma attached to the friendship. You see, shortly after the Grahams arrived, they decided they wanted even more cattle. 200 more, to be exact. So they bought 200 head from a Mormon rancher named William Flake, who was on top of the Mogollon Rim. Not a problem, really, you know, if you have enough hands to help herd them down to the valley. That is why they hired Jim Tewksbury, after all. The dilemma arrived when it came time to do the herding. Because on top of the 200 heads of cattle, the Grams were going to do a little something called mavericking. Now, mavericking isn't just putting your hand over a card and hoping the like ace of spades comes up or something. No, mavericking is where you just kind of picked up and stole or took or liberated, depending on your point of view. But mavericking was rounding up whatever loose or lost cattle that was found while driving your own herd and then keeping them for yourself. It was essentially cattle rustling. It was rampant in the Pleasant Valley. So on the drive, the Grahams secreted away a bunch of cattle into a canyon. But not all of the mavericked cattle. They left some in the herd. Before they got to the Mogollon Rim, a cowboy for William Flake came and separated the mavericked ones from the bought ones. And then feeling good, like he'd done his job, like he'd done his duty, the cowboy herded them back to Flake's ranch. The Grahams then herded their bought cattle down the rim And on the way, they picked up the secreted away cattle that were hid in the canyon, and they herded the whole lot of them into Pleasant Valley. It is at this point where a powerful and rich Californian, a man new to the area, comes into our story. This cattleman is named James Stinson. We'll get to him a bit more in a minute. For now, it's his ranch foreman that causes some trouble for the Tewksburys and the Grahams. You see this ranch foreman? A man named John Gilliland, he witnessed the Grams and Jim Tewksbury herd in the 200 cattle, as well as the clearly stolen cattle. John Gilliland then rode over to the Tewksbury Corral, where they were being held, to confront them about it. But the problem is that the exact moment he rode up on the cowboys was the exact moment they were rebranding the cows to look like their own. Now, obviously, that is stealing, and that's a big problem in the Wild West. And like I just previously said, especially in Pleasant Valley where cattle rustling was already running rampant at this early of a date. Now, nothing came of this confrontation, but the foreman, John, would not forget what he witnessed that day. Neither would Jim Tewksbury, apparently, because he would end up telling his father about the whole mavericking incident. Once his father was informed, J.D. Tewksbury was horrified at this thievery. 
and he told his sons that they had to quit this band of Graham hooligans at once. Damn the money he was making before they damned his soul. Or worse, got him killed. After this sage advice, Jim Tewksbury would quit working for the Grahams, but the friendship of the two families continued. This may, though, have been the first cast of shade on the bright future the two clans may have had. So the Tewksburys and the Grahams were still friends and close neighbors. The Tewksburys had horses, and they both had cattle. But the Grahams had a lot more cattle. And their numbers of cattle were suspiciously growing at an alarming rate, alarming to those in the valley. Despite Jim quitting the Grahams, the two families may have still been working together at this time, and they may have begun to dabble together in a little bit of rebranding, or putting their brand over another brand to hide the original brand, and essentially, again, it's cattle rustling, it's stealing cattle. If you had cattle, you had a brand. But it was extremely important that you did not have a brand that looked anything close to or resembling any of your neighbor's brands. You wouldn't want to be accused of taking your brand and putting it over another brand, which is what rebranding is. In Pleasant Valley, at this time, it seemed like everyone had a brand similar to one particular herd owned by one particular man. And that particular man had trouble with all this theft of his cattle. He was, well, he was livid. I am talking about the rich and powerful man of James Stinson that I just mentioned earlier. Stinson was a large and connected cattleman himself, but he was often not at his ranch in Pleasant Valley on account of being appointed to the Arizona Territorial Legislature. So, his foreman, John Gilliland, took up the reins. This same foreman who witnessed the mavericking and rebranding of Flakes cattle. John Gilliland, without wasting much time, accused the Tewksburys of stealing cattle or rebranding some of Stinson's cattle with their own Tewksbury brand. Now, by my accounts, uh, the Tewksburys were probably indeed guilty of this offense, but I do think it was mostly at the discretion of the Grahams. But it's hard to ignore the fact that some of the little cows with the Tewksbury brands were suckling on cows with the Stinson brand. Stinson, though, he told Gilliland to just ignore it. He had a plan of his own that was soon to be set in motion. But John Gilliland, no, he, uh, he could not abide by that. To him, action had to be taken. Now, maybe this rebranding and thievery wouldn't have gone anywhere, but the foreman Gilliland and some of his cowboys got a little of that fire water in them. They were sipping that whiskey, and they got all stirred up to anger. Much like the Apache kid during his Tiswin bender, well, John Gilliland got himself all agitated and he rode with one of his cowboys, an Epitacio Potash Ruiz, and his cousin Elijah. The three rode over to Ed Tewksbury Place to confront him. At that time, though, at the Tewksbury's Place was Ed Tewksbury, John Graham, and Tom Graham. Apparently, Frank and John Tewksbury were out getting supplies to build John Tewksbury's wife a cabin of her own seeing as how she had to share a very small space with a bunch of stinky brothers and their stinky friends. Hanging around cows and horses all day, it sure brings a certain odor to a person. Well, once John Gilliland, his cousin Elijah, and his cowboy had arrived, the consensus is he begun to insult Ed. Ed responded in kind. 
Gilliland responded by pulling a gun and taking a shot. But you see, they'd been drinking, so maybe Gilliland's aim was a little off. Also, the shot seemed to have spooked Gilliland's horse. Ed's aim, though? Well, it was not off, and after he got shot at, he did the appropriate thing, and he shot back. Apparently, at the same time, that Gilliland fired a second shot, so bullets were literally whizzing past each other. This second shot of Gilliland's went through John Graham's hat. That's a close call. But Ed's shot went into the back of the leaning over Gilliland. He was, his horse was being uncooperative. So John Gilliland was leaning over his horse, and the bullet entered his back, went up through his flesh until it got lodged in the man's shoulder. Gilliland then yelled at his cousin to ride away. But his cousin Elijah had other plans and pulled the hammer back on his rifle and set about to aim at the Tewksburys. But Ed put a bullet in Elijah as well. That bullet also hit Elijah's back and came exploding out his hip. He fell from his horse into the dust after screaming, I'm killed! In pain and in fear, John Gilliland rode back to Stinson's ranch, assuming his cousin was dead. At Potassio Potash Ruiz, he was long gone. He rode away at the first sign of trouble. I believe he was also unarmed. Gilliland would get help from his parents and he'd be patched up. Elijah would be carried to the Stinson ranch by John Graham, a man named Al Rose, John Jim, and Frank Tewksbury. It's strange hearing all of those names together, because let me tell you, this story does not end well for a single one of those men and boys. And many of their deaths are at the hands of the other or someone closely associated with them. But that was yet to come, for now. The incident greatly upset the patriarch Tewksbury, J.D., who immediately wrote a letter that was printed on the pages of the Arizona Gazette. And he clearly outlined that the blame was fully on John Gilliland and his cousin for showing up unannounced and starting trouble. Oh, and for definitely firing the first shot. Although that is still debated. As most of this story is, really. I guess as most violent incidences are concerned, period. No one wants to be the first one to shoot. Although the first one to shoot is usually the one who comes out on top. And alive. Amazingly, in that same article, J.D. Tewksbury also wrote that they wanted no interference from the law regarding this matter, please. And that they would not submit themselves for arrest. This was on their property, and they wanted to be left alone. They were not pressing charges, so case closed as far as the Tewksbury's were concerned. Unfortunately, a constable in nearby Strawberry Valley, a very cute town uh, north of Payson, but a constable, William Birch, had other plans, and he had the Tewksbury's and the Grahams arrested. You see, he thought that Elijah had been killed. Everyone did, really. Word hadn't reached him yet that the boy survived. So, with nine men, Constable Birch set out for the Tewksbury Ranch. But along the way, he not only discovered that Elijah was in fact alive, but also that the Tewksbury Ranch had about 20 armed men waiting for him. The constable realized he was outgunned, and he needed a bigger posse. It would take him a few days to gather that posse together. In the meantime, Ed Tewksbury and Tom Graham rode together, Still, strange 
seeing them cooperate. But uh, Ed Tewksbury and Tom Graham rode together to Prescott to file their own charges against the Gillilands and Ruiz. Back at the Tewksbury Ranch, John, Jim, and Frank Tewksbury, along with John Graham, all surrendered to the constable, Birch Posse, and they were taken to nearby Strawberry Valley. At the trial in Strawberry Valley, well, the case was thrown out. And it was thrown out for two reasons. First of all, not a single witness came to testify against the Tewksburys. And second, the dead man in question, because remember they were arrested for murder. Well, I guess I didn't say that, but they were arrested for murder. But the dead man in question was not dead. He was very much alive. And now his story had changed a little. You know, it went from, well, Ed fired first to, well, maybe Ed went for his gun first. But then Elijah's cousin, John Gilliland, was more successful at shooting first. Although he wasn't successful at hitting. Again, on account of the liquor and the untamed horse that didn't like the movements and the sounds. This was a little different than the, oh, we showed up and Ed shot us. So the case was dismissed. In Strawberry Valley, at least. But it was only just beginning in Prescott. In Prescott, the case was now against Gilliland and Ruiz, but they called on as witnesses the entire gang of Tewksburys, including the two men who were not even there at the time. That would have been the 22-year-old Frank and his brother John. Remember, they'd been gone. They were getting supplies to build a fireplace for John's wife. Okay, by the way, these supplies that they were getting to build... John's wife's fireplace and cabin, they were getting rocks from a nearby Indian ruin to build their structure with. <laughs> How many structures out in the American Southwest are reused, quote-unquote, Indian ruins? I know when I did my archaeological excavation, my like field school for college, I went to Belize and I worked on Maya ruins that were on Mennonite land. And these Mennonites did the same thing. They would take parts of these Maya structures, temples, houses, compounds, and they would build their own walls. They would build their own fireplaces. They would use the stones as doorstops. So yeah, it's just, I mean, even if you look at Italy back in the day, they did the same thing to the Roman ruins. You got to use what's at hand. Anyways, all the Tewksbury men rode 150 some odd miles west in the middle of a cold, windy, miserable January. Where? The case went nowhere, and neither Gilliland or Ruiz were convicted. It had all been for nothing. And on top of it, Frank Tewksbury caught both the measles and pneumonia on the very cold trip. Back at Pleasant Valley, things were beginning to get unpleasant. Especially after young Frank passed away. Now... Can you count him as the first death in the Pleasant Valley War? I kind of do. Now, the Tewksburys, they blamed Stinson for the death of their younger brother. At least right now. And it was at this point that it seems the Tewksburys and the Grahams decided to team up and begin mabricking Stinson cattle from all over the valley. Not only did Stinson deserve some stolen cattle over the death of Frank, the Tewksburys thought, but Stinson was an outsider, an intruder, and he had showed up after the Tewksburys with his money and influence. And besides, Stinson was always gone on business anyways. 
Here is a great but long excerpt from Jinx Pile, um, where he quotes a relative of his own. I mean, this guy compiled the true encyclopedia of this whole event. It is absolutely fantastic. It was 165 some odd dollars to buy the physical copy of the book, but the like Kindle version was four dollars. And this is the first book, digital book, I have read in my entirety of doing this podcast. And uh, let me tell you, physical books are the way to go. But I digress. This is Jinx Pyle. According to Floyd Pyle, who got his information from Harvey Colcord, the Graham and Tewksbury men had an oral agreement to work together and brand Mavericks into a joint ownership brand. Stinson had the only big cow herd in the valley, so he would likely supply most of the Mavericks. This did not bother the Tewksbury brothers because they resented Stinson's high-handed ways. They regarded him as an intruder in the valley. Stinson had made an effort to buy out the earlier settlers in order to control the rights to all the Pleasant Valley grazing, and in so doing, had incurred the displeasure of the Tewksburys. They had come first, and they would stay. Ed Tewksbury is quoted by Bob Voris on page 43 of his unpublished manuscript titled The Pleasant Valley War. The Tewksbury's, quote, tried to get along with the Stinson when he first came, but it was impossible. So he stole a few head of his cattle just to torment the old man, end quote. Drusilla Hazelton agrees with Voris. In her unpublished manuscript titled The Tonto Basins, Early Settlers, she states on page nine, quote, the Grahams and Tewksburys immediately became good friends, and through devious means and questionable tactics, a sizable herd of cattle was acquired in partnership, all branded T.E. Connected. End. All quotes. And T.E. Connected would be the brand that the Tewksburys would use. And it was similar to Stinson's, so easy to put it all together, really. While the feud between these two families is yet to consume the valley, their actions of rustling cattle and causing trouble was laying the groundwork for a violence between Anglos that the West had not previously seen nor would see again, not counting the Battle of uh, Glorieta Pass in 1862 in New Mexico, of course. And again, I say Anglos, but the Tewksburys are half Indian. So these two families, the Tewksburys and the Grahams, were seemingly in partnership to rebrand stolen cattle, mainly from Stinson, and they would grow fat and happy doing it. Or so they should have. So what on earth happened? This is called the Graham-Tewksbury feud, after all. Rich and powerful and connected Judge Stinson, it turns out, had married a Mormon woman and he had converted. So he was not a violent man. And he was a literal judge. And he wanted to build himself a cattle country empire in this here Pleasant Valley. But he wasn't going to be breaking any laws to get it. And he wasn't going to kill anyone to save his herds. He really only had one way to fight these rustlers. And that was turn them on each other. This is why he told Gilliland to leave it be. He had things in motion. He had a plan with steps and an end goal. Of course, his plan didn't work out the way he wanted it in the end. And it essentially resulted in 50 or more people dying. But he did not know that when he put this plan into motion. 
Stinson's first step was what has been called the Treaty of War. This was a contract between John Graham and James Stinson, made at the courthouse in Yavapai County on November 14, 1883. And this Treaty of War states that John Graham will receive 25 cows and 25 calves, so 50 heads of cattle in total. He'll receive that for information regarding who on earth was stealing and rebranding Stinson's cattle. And this was clearly aimed towards the Tewksburys. And John Graham had to have known that. As Jinx Pyle points out, this is a 100-degree turnabout for John Graham. The Tewksburys had invited the Grahams there in the first place. They'd helped them herd cattle. They'd helped them steal cattle. They'd helped them build their cabin, their corral. They were friends. Ed Tewksbury may have even saved John's life at the Tewksbury Ranch when uh, John Gilligan showed up and they had the shootout. Loyal and hot-tempered. Furious enemies have crossed. While the Tewksburys were about to be crossed by their best friends, the Grahams. In 1884, it was time for the Treaty of War to come into effect. By this time, 1884, the Tewksburys had a new man on their team, a man named George Blaine. And Stinson had a new foreman, a man named Marion McCann. And John Graham had a mission, betray Ed Tewksbury. In June of 84, the plan began. When John, Jim, and Ed Tewksbury all had to go to court in Prescott again, but they were accompanied by George Blaine and two other men. All six men were accused by Stinson, or really secretly John Graham, but all six had been accused of stealing ten heads of cattle from the Stinson Ranch and rebranding them. They had three indictments headed their way. The real kicker came when the second indictment included the charge of also stealing ten heads of cattle from John and Tom Graham? How on earth was that possible if they were friends and working together to steal cattle from Stinson? Unless the two stories were starting to piece it together. Unfortunately, though, while in Prescott, more indictments came for George Blaine and Jim Tewksbury when they were accused of committing armed robbery in Apache County. This story, according to the Mormon polygamist Joseph Fish, the two, George Blaine and Jim Tewksbury, came into his Apache County Mormon ACMI store with masks and guns and told everyone to put their hands in the air or else. The attendees of the store eventually raised their hands before one of the masked men came over to Joseph Fish, who had been counting money in the open. And according to Fish, the man then, quote, ordered me to give him the money that was in the safe, which was open at the time, as I had been counting it to see if it tallied with the cash balance on the cash book. I hesitated a little, and he commenced to gradually pull on the trigger of his pistol. End quote. I mean, you can see it. You can see him come over with the mask and the gun and, and Fish's face. And when he doesn't do it quick enough, doesn't get that money quick enough, he slowly pulls the trigger and the hammer is, you know, kind of kind of going back. Or the hammer's already back. And at any moment, it could fly forward. Eventually, 
Joseph Fish gave the men what they wanted, which amounted to about $500, a pistol, some binoculars, and a few other stuffs from the store before the two assailants hopped on their horses and escorted the men of the store some 50 yards away from their guns. The thieves then put spurs to horse and took off towards Holbrook. But before long, they cut towards the Tonto Basin and Pleasant Valley. They would soon pour over the Mogollon Rim and be lost. Joseph Fish would later learn the names of the armed robbers were Jim Tewksbury, the half-breed Indian, and his accomplice, the rough-and-ready from Colorado, George Blaine. Things were looking rough for the Tewksburys. That is, until they found themselves a new and unlikely ally, the Daggs brothers. I will return to the Daggs brothers in a little bit, but they straight up bought John Tewksbury's and George Blaine's ranches, which allowed the Tewksbury's and their allies to pay for their bonds so they didn't have to sit in jail. It must have been painful to sell their land, but in reality, the Daggs brothers never kicked either of them off their property and never really even visited the valley. The men were allowed to stay there, but it seems a deal had been struck between the two parties, the Tewksburys and Blaines, and the Daggs. A deal I will go into shortly. Later that summer in 1884, the court trial began, and the attorneys for the Tewksburys discover the Treaty of War, the Stinson and Graham Agreement. It was most likely now, in this moment, that the Tewksburys realized they'd been betrayed by the Grahams, their friends and neighbors. They were in court fighting for their freedom, and they'd sold their ranches to outsiders. And then... In trial, they learned their good friends and neighbors had betrayed them. This, this is the moment that the Pleasant Valley War began. No one knew at this time that the feud would consume and flood the valley with blood. But some were seeing the writing on the wall, including Stinson himself. This, this trial, the trial, it was a total disgrace for the Grahams and Stinson, but way more for the Grahams. And the jury and the judge, they could smell a rat. And when it was discovered that this was all set up, every charge against the Tewksburys were dismissed. And immediately after the trial, two Tewksbury gang partisans, with one being Al Rose, a name that will come up later, but Al Rose and another man turned right back around and filed charges against John and Tom Graham. The two Grahams were arrested they were denounced in court, they were censored in the newspapers, and their names became mud. They were indicted by a grand jury and set to appear in court the following summer. This was the beginning of the end for the Grahams. It was also the second piece of the foundation between the two sides to crumble. Soon the entire valley would collapse. On his way out of Prescott, George Blaine bought a cartridge of forty fives and told the Tewksburys he was going to clean out the, quote, damned Stinson gang, end quote. The Treaty of War, it seemed, had backfired. But true to its word, it started a war. As for the armed robbery trial, there was no real evidence against Blaine or Jim Tewksbury, 
And since the main witnesses had moved to Mexico to continue practicing polygamy, there was no real trial either. Blaine and Jim were acquitted. Did they really commit armed robbery on a little Mormon store near St. Joseph, Arizona and steal a gun, binoculars, or field glasses, as they were called, and $500? I don't know, but I wouldn't put it past them. It is impossible to stay neutral in telling or reading about or hearing this story of the feud. And, as Jinx puts it in the beginning of his book, quote, Anyone who spends a significant amount of time researching the Pleasant Valley War will come to favor one side or the other. So, although I have done my best to give a fair account of each event, I freely admit to feeling more at home in the Tewksbury camp. End quote. I, Thomas Wayne Riley, freely admit that I do too. Especially after learning about this pointless betrayal. But also, just so many factors make it tough to be on the Graham side. Even if they are Scots. So it kind of sucks to admit that, yeah, they probably held up a store at gunpoint and rode away below the rim. I mean, in reality, these men will do a lot more vile and violent things in the near future. After the Treaty of War was discovered, the Tewksburys were betrayed. Everything was about to change. John Tewksbury, 29 years old, already had a long, crazy life. He could not stand for it. And on July 24, 1884, John Tewksbury rode over to the Graham's ranch where John and Tom Graham, as well as several Stinson men, were milling about. Once there, John Tewksbury got off his horse, walked over to John Graham, and slapped him in the face. The Yavapai criminal records then states, quote, Graham took the abuse and did not fight back, whereby Tewksbury faced down both the Stinson Riders and the Graham brothers, then rode away. End quote. Loyal and hot-tempered, furious enemies if crossed. It's worth mentioning that while all of these court dates and trials and travels to the big city of Prescott were going on, while the running of a ranch and the rustling of cattle, and dealing with the Tewksbury Fiesta parties, that's something I have not mentioned yet, but these fiestas were famous around uh, the valley. J.D. Tewksbury had picked them up when he was in California. Uh, he loved to throw himself some parties and races and rodeos. But while all of that was going on, plus the raising of cattle and the fights with the neighbors and the growing of an empire. While all of this, both clean and nefarious work was going on, it's worth mentioning that Ed Tewksbury was becoming famous around the territory for killing lions. By the summer of 1884, while his brother faced down angry cowboys and slapped him in the face, Ed had killed six lions in that year alone. It was a sign of things to come. Also in 1884, the final incident between the Tewksburys and the Stinsons occurred. It would be the final straw for old Judge Stinson, too. In July of that year, John Tewksbury and three other men in their faction, those men being William Richards, George Blaine, and Ed Rose, well, all four of them rode over to the Stinson's ranch to talk about and plan the upcoming fiesta and rodeo that John Tewksbury's father put on every year. But remember, Blaine had just bought some 45 ammo and had promised to wipe out the Grams. 
And in the Tewksbury's mind, the Grahams and the Stinsons were one and the same. Well, at the Stinson Ranch, the group met his new foreman, a Marion McCann, and with Marion McCann were five other cowboys who met the Tewksbury's gang at the gate. They apparently exchanged some words before eventually the foreman McCann had had enough and he told the Tewksbury group to get lost. Well, that is except for Ed Rose. He could stay since he was trying to stay neutral in the growing feud. Requests turned to threats, which turned to insults, which turned into George Blank cussing out McCann, which led to threats, which ended up getting George Blank shot in the throat by McCann. The bullet would exit the back of George Blaine's neck. To be fair, though, it was reported that Blaine fired first from his horse and he fired high. While McCann, expecting some gunplay, grabbed his conveniently ready rifle and did not miss. During the shootout, John Tewksbury fired back twice and missed, and he too was shot. Apparently, he did not share in his brother Ed's talents as an accurate shooter. Although that's not true. He, uh, both John Tewksbury and George Blaine, they would flee on horseback, and both would survive. And this whole matter would be settled later in court in Prescott. Before his wound had even healed, George Blaine would sell and leave Pleasant Valley. Smart. In Similar fashion, tired of the violence beginning to erupt around him, sad that his plan had backfired, and leery of the sheep that were moving into the valley. The old Judge Stinson eventually listened to his wife, and he sold his horses, cattle, and land, and left for greener pastures. Or, he left for Phoenix. The only thing green down there are the saguaros. But Stinson, he was gone. Sure, he'd played a huge role in starting the feud by pitting the two sides, the Tewksburys and the Grahams, against each other. But he wasn't going to stick around to see how it played out. And technically he did not start anything. He was only reacting as best he could to the events around him. But some of the blame for the bloodiest and most violent feud outside of the War of Northern Aggression that the United States has ever seen... Some of that blame rests on Stinson. A little. Only a little. So the Grahams lost a pretty big ally once Stinson left. And then they would get arrested again for cattle rustling. But they'd fail to appear in court, which is never a good idea, and which resulted in the forfeit of the bonds people put up for them. And because of all this, they'd lose over half their herd. They would even, at this time, put their holdings in their ranch up for sale. They were also done with the feud before it had even really started. But no one took the bait. Their name continued to be mud. They really weren't very good at raising cattle. I mean, heck, they weren't even very good at rustling cattle. But soon, things would change for the Grams. More soldiers, more backup, more friends would arrive to help. Their faction. The first of those arrivals for the Grahams was Tom and John's half-brother Billy Graham. The second of those arrivals for the Grahams were much more numerous and infinitely more troublesome. These were the Blevins from Texas, and they became next-door neighbors to the Grahams, 
neighbors, and good friends. The eldest Blevins boy, Andy Blevins, he was wanted for cattle theft in Texas and for selling whiskey to Indians in Oklahoma. And he'd either jumped off a train while under arrest or escaped from jail in Texas. Not sure. Either way, this whole affair forced him, Andy Blevins, to change his name to Cooper to avoid the law. Andy Blevins Cooper. Andy's father, Mart Blevins, and his brother, Andy's brother, Hamp Blevins, also came to the area with Andy, as well as Mart's wife, their daughter, Maysia, and eventually John Black Blevins, his family, and Sam Houston Blevins. Also with them was a cellmate and friend by the name of George Gladden. He also brought his family. Although the Blevins mostly lived on top of the Mogollon Rim with their women and children, they did have a small ranch, like I said, in Pleasant Valley, right next to the Grahams. And the story goes, the owners of the cabin, Will and John Quincy Adams, as well as their LDS families, they left the valley to attend the temple in St. George, uh, Utah, which is on the northwest border of Arizona, near Nevada. I think it's on I-15. Yeah, I know it's on I-15. But... When Will and John Quincy Adams and their family returned to their own homes, they found Andy Blevins Cooper had taken up residence and simply refused to leave. He had his reputation and his six-shooter to back him up, of course. Another story has it that Andy paid the Adams 200 bucks, but wanted to continue to look mean, so he kind of told this story to everyone. I mean, I wouldn't put that past him, but I really would not put it past him to just take someone's property. There's a very good chance he'd done the exact same thing to another Mormon family on top of the rim a year or so before while that family was attending church conference. And it wasn't just a family. I mean, an entire town was taken over by the Blevins on the Mogollon Rim. I say Blevins. Well, we ain't nobody sure who it was exactly, but the story goes, A family went to a conference, came back, and their whole town had been taken over by a family from Texas. Who else than the Blevins? These were the kinds of people that attached themselves to the Grahams at this part of our story. The Blevins were outlaws. They were tough men. They had reputations and warrants. And as soon as they got to the valley, their first order of business was horse thieving. And the two main thieves were Andy Blevins, Cooper, and Hamp Blevins. We must now mention even more friends, partisans, acquaintances, and backup for the Grams, the cowboys and enforcers of the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, a.k.a. the Hash Knife Boys, or Hash Knife Gang. This Aztec Land and Cattle Company had just relocated from Texas to northwest Arizona after the company bought a million acres in Arizona from a railroad company. A million acres. And with the move, they brought 33,000 head of cattle and 2,000 horses. As Jinx Pyle puts it, while many of these men were mostly honest and hardworking, just as many were gunslingers. Sometimes these gunslingers, they'd get drunk and shoot up a whole town straight up out of a Wild West movie. Sometimes the Hashnaf boys would shoot up Indians. Sometimes they'd shoot up each other. Some of them used to run with famous outlaws like Billy the Kid. 
some of these cowboys would become outlaws later themselves. One man even described these Hashanivers as, quote, many of the worst men that ever left Texas. Not all of the men that came with the outfit were cowboys. Many were enforcers who would ensure that no cattle was stolen and, more importantly, that no sheep grazed the cattle grass. This is the second time I've mentioned sheep. Stay tuned for that wooly story here. But many of these cowboys and enforcers, they would side with the Blevins and the Grahams. They were cattlemen, cowboys, and they hated the Tewksbury's sheep. Again, I'll get to that in a moment. From now on, though, we're going to call the cowboys and enforcers from the Aztec Landing Cattle Company by their nickname, the Hashnaf Boys, or I think I made up a word, Hashnifers. And they were called the Hashnaf Boys on account of their brand looking like a hashknife. What's a hashknife, you ask? Good question. I certainly didn't know, so I had to look it up. According to the Hashnife Pony Express, the, quote, oldest officially sanctioned Pony Express in the world, end quote. They do reenactments of the Pony Express in Arizona. It's pretty cool looking. Um, according to these men who bring history to life every year, quote, The hash knife was a tool originally used by chuck wagon cooks to cut meat for hash, often fed to cowboys on the range. The hash knife brand originated in Texas as the identification of the Aztec Landing Cattle Company, which moved to Holbrook, Arizona in 1866. End quote. The hash knife looks like a combination between like an old school corkscrew with like a handle and a crescent moon, except that the crescent moon is a blade. I'll have a picture of one up on the website. And actually, two days ago, my wife and I went to an antique store and I bought a hash knife. So. These boys were called the Hashknife Boys, or just Hashknife, or as I will call them, Hashknifers. And they, originally being from Texas, fell right in with the Blevins and the Grahams. Ogden Tanner, uh, he was the one that wrote the text for the ranchers, he writes about these boys, quote, Together with their hosts, the Hashknife Boys were helping to expand the mavericking of a few neighbors' cattle into one of the most extensive and lucrative rustling operations in the entire Southwest, reaching out far beyond Pleasant Valley through Arizona, Utah, and Colorado, and into Mexico. One rancher, who lost virtually all of his livestock, described the rustlers as a, quote, thoroughly organized band of criminals who sought by hook or crook to take possession of the valley. End all quotes. In other words, they were bad news. But their injuries spread beyond cattle rustling, too. Eventually, they also stole the Tewksbury's horses, which got them accused of stealing the Tewksbury's horses by the Tewksbury's themselves. In response, the Hashnaf boys and the Grahams called the half-Indian, half-white Tewksbury's engines and blacks and vowed to, quote, run the damn blacks out of the country, end quote. Remember, Ed Tewksbury was half Native American, and apparently he was quite dark. He had a dark complexion. You know, I hesitated to tell this story that I'm about to tell, but I just think I have to. I mean, it's not inappropriate or anything. It's just like not central to the story. Well, you know what? It kind of is central to the story, which is why I'm going to tell it. Also, it's just so good. And I assume that it is somewhat factual. 
Uh, it gives depth to Ed Tewksbury, the half-Indian. You know, whether this story is real or not, people believed it was real. It's just a great Wild West tale, like this whole story. But regardless, so this is a story from the amazing, again, Jinx Pyle's comprehensive book. In the fall of 1885, probably 1886, after the Tewksburys had gone into the sheep business, a party of rustlers came into the town of Payson, headed by a man named Gladden, who said he was looking for a half-breed sheep man, and who was spending money lavishly. He insisted on meeting the head officials of the town. Upon being introduced to Emor, or Emer, Chileson, Deputy Sheriff, and John Meadows, Justice of the Peace, Gladden said, quote, I have killed two men. I had to do it. I will not be arrested by you or anyone else. End quote. While speaking, he patted his gun in a significant manner. Then he insisted on treating the crowd. After everyone had poured his drink, Gladden looked down the line to Ed Tewksbury and said loudly, quote, Here's where I draw the line. I'll not drink with a black man. End quote. The mother of Tewksbury was an Indian squaw, and Ed was quite dark. The family was among the earliest settlers in Pleasant Valley, and it always stood for justice. Ed was always well-dressed, usually wearing gloves. At this time, he was wearing dark clothes and white gloves. As Gladden spoke, Tewksbury quietly removed his gloves and placed them in his pocket. Then he walked down the line and slapped Gladden soundly on both sides of his face, paused a moment, and repeated the punishment, saying contemptuously, quote, If you can't use both guns, draw one. End quote. Gladden made no attempt to draw either of the guns at his belt, but rushed out of the saloon with his hands extended up and crossed the street to his pack, crying, Give me my rifle! Give me my rifle! He did not return to the crowd. End quote. Later that night, apparently, um... The story continues that Ed Tewksbury left the saloon, I guess, uh, Bissick's Beer Saloon in Payson. He left the saloon. He was walking down the road when Gladden like, came out from his hiding spot with his rifle. And Ed Tewksbury looked at him and said, quote, Walk down the road to the right distance in place and we will shoot it out. End quote. But apparently Gladden uh, kept going, neither stopping nor looking around. Gladden had actually been... Uh, cellmates with Hamp Blevins in Texas, and he would later be killed during a train robbery. He wasn't, like, being robbed. He was the one doing the robbing. This was the Wild West, after all, and these characters, these cowboys, these hash knifers, these men, they were as wild and wooly as it gets. And speaking of wooly, it's time we bring one of our main antagonizers into the fold of this story. Sometimes I'm clever. Ogden Tanner of the Old West Ranchers book writes, quote, As much a menace as the rustler, and in the eyes of a cattleman, even more contemptible, was the sheep. A lowly pedestrian among the mounted knights and barons of the plains, the herder was a peculiar sort who spent months at a time alone with his flock. He generally spoke little English and came from other than Anglo-Saxon stock, perhaps Mexican, or Indian, or Basque, or he might be a Mormon, which made him almost as much an alien, end quote. Mormons are essentially alien, it's true, I can say that. Clearly, these shepherds, these sheep herders, were not liked, 
But the cattlemen and cowboys hated the actual sheep even more. At this point in time, the number of sheep had skyrocketed in the West and would eventually top 1.5 million. The problem is, sheep, as the legendary conservationist John Muir puts it, were, quote, hoofed locusts, end quote. The cattlemen agreed. A saying among them about sheep was, quote, everything in front of a sheep is eaten and everything behind is killed, end quote. These woolly monsters, which is a great term, these woolly monsters were truly hated by the cattle barons who were, probably rightfully so, worried about getting sheeped. And that is when sheep come from the lowlands, eat all the cow's grass, and continue right on up to the high mountains where they can live better than the cattle, which leaves the rancher with no grass for their cattle until the following year, if they're lucky. Also, at this time, to show you how much the sheep were hated, there were laws on the books in the territory of Arizona that stated no sheep could graze within two miles of cattle range. I mean, it shows the contempt. It also shows the influence of the cattlemen on the governments of the region. There was also, at this time, a very real understanding between the sheepmen and the cattlemen that said the sheep do not go south of the Mogollon Rim. Like, end of story. No matter how tempting it was to let them sheep eat that sweet, sweet grass to the south and below the high cliffs, it was a non-issue. As Jinx Pyle points out, there are quite a few marked and unmarked graves of sheep herders on the Mogollon Rim, even to this day. If you even got close to the rim, at the helm of them woolly stinkers, you were liable to wake up dead. That border, though, was about to be tested. With quite foreseeable outcomes, might I add. Earlier, I mentioned the Dags brothers, which kind of reminds me of a snatch, you know. Dags? I don't like Dags. Anyways, the Dags brothers. It's high time we bring them in, too. Over near Flagstaff, Arizona, which is today on I-40 and which town sits south of the Grand Canyon and beneath the towering, beautiful San Francisco peaks. You know, the place where the Kachinas emerge from. Well, over near Flagstaff, the largest sheep operation in the area, especially northern Arizona, was owned by the Daggs brothers. The Daggs consisted of five brothers. Peru Paxton, William, John, Robert, and Jackson Daggs. And they were all from Missouri. But... They'd arrived to Flagstaff via California. Once in Flagstaff, they eventually grew their California herd of sheep from 1,500 to 50,000 sheep. They weren't just sheep herders, though. One of the brothers, John, he owned the Flagstaff Brewery, and two other brothers, Robert and Jackson, were attorneys. They were also involved in everything from real estate to railroads, from mining to baking, they even had an ice plant and a land development company. They even ranched with cattle, too. They were wealthy, and they were connected to both the law and law enforcement. They also now owned John Tewksbury and George Blaine's land, and they planned on moving some sheep down into Pleasant Valley, down past the top of the Mogollon Rim. 
For some time now, the Daggs brothers had been terrorized and harassed and harangued by the Hashknife boys who continuously pushed them off their ranges up north so that the Hashknife cattle could graze instead of the sheep. The Hashknife boys have even been accused of driving Dag's sheep into the little Colorado River where they would drown them by the hundreds, if not thousands. The Dags had little choice but to start going south, especially after the ranchers were taken over the north. And they finally had an in with the Tewksburys. This battle was quickly morphing into a feud over sheep and cattle, instead of just cattle rustling. And the battle was about to heat up. Around this time, one of the Hashknife boys remarked that they planned to, quote, start a little old war of our own, end quote. By now, everyone in Pleasant Valley, from the north end to the south, near Globe, essentially had to be on a side whether they wanted to or not. Jinx Pyle tells a great story from the notes of a Sam A. Hot about a man named John Rhodes. John Rhodes will become a very important man later in the story, but John Rhodes, who was connected to the Dags, this John Rhodes had recently took over Blaine's ranch. And now Blaine was the one who leapt up out the valley after a bullet leapt up out the back of his neck through his throat. The story goes as follows. John Rhodes came in with the PK cattle. Two grandmen met him in the road. Are you the man who brought these PK cattle in here? He said, yes. They said, we are at war with the Tewksburys. John said, so I hear. They said, we want you to join us. John said, I do not know the Tewksburys or Grahams. The grandmen said, we do not allow anyone in Pleasant Valley unless they join us. Rhodes drew his pistol and said, no SOBs can make me do anything I don't want to. End all quotes. This story repeated itself up and down the valley with multiple people retelling it. Local newspapers even reported on the escalating armed cowboys of the two factions. Everyone knew the two sides. Everyone knew something was brewing. Every now and then, uh, this here war gets portrayed as being binary between like cattle and sheep. Cowboys and sheep herders. But that just really ain't the truth. I mean, yeah, that's some of it. But so many ranchers and cattlemen sided with the Tewksburys, who were connected with and had sheep. In reality, the Tewksburys mainly had sheep for the sole purpose of running the grams out of the valley. But that, of course, as so many plans of mice and men do, it backfired and it inflamed the already precarious nature of the valley. Really, it was a war about rustling. It was between men who wanted to live and men who wanted to hinder others from living. A tale as old as time. A tale anyone living now probably knows. Jinx, as usual, puts it perfectly when he wrote, quote, It is well to remember that all during the Pleasant Valley War, not only were the Tewksburys fighting the Grams, but they were protecting their considerable horse herd from the outlaws. In this, they were on the same side of the war as other ranchers, and for this reason they were sided by several of those ranchers. End quote. 
So it ain't just sheep versus cattle. But that does play a very large role in the war. And it's about to be the spark that ignites it. In February of 1887, in order to move some of the sheep from the top of the rim and down into Pleasant Valley over to the Tewksbury's land, the Daggs brothers hired a Mexican who had two Indians. I would guess Navajo because they often are sheep herders. But the Daggs hired a Mexican who hired two Indians to help them move a large portion of the flock from the Flagstaff area to the Tewksbury's land. On this journey, one of the Tewksbury's allies, a William Jacobs, herded two of the Daggs brothers' flocks himself. It seems they were armed in preparation for any trouble. Of course, trouble arrived. But from an unexpected source. Right at the edge of the Mogollon Rim, three miles north of the Graham's Ranch, before they had descended down into the valley, the Mexican sheep herder was ambushed by a lone gunman. This lone gunman apparently complimented the man's rifle and asked to see it. He, of course, had his own gun on the Mexican. When the Mexican herder had no option but to hand over his rifle, the lone gunman holstered his pistol, took the rifle, chambered around, aimed it at the Mexican, and pulled the trigger. He was killed with his own rifle. A single shot. The murderer was a man named Bill Colcord. He was friendly with the Tewksburys. He and his brother Harvey did not like the Grahams at all, and they'd had their horses and cattle stolen from the Grahams and the Hashnifers. They'd even been threatened by them. But the Colcords simply couldn't live with sheep in the valley eating their cattle's grass. The Colcords were hardy men who could look after themselves and had been doing so since they were quite young. But this was an error in judgment. Harvey apparently distracted the Tewksburys at their ranch while Bill went up and murdered the Dag's Mexican herder. Bill then left the sheep where they were before riding straight towards the Grams, making sure to leave a very easy-to-follow trail. Later, Indian trackers would even say, hired Indian trackers would even say that the murder was committed by a man on a horse who then headed straight for the Graham ranch. The war had begun. After months of heavy stares from heavily armed men across fence lines and ranches, the first casualty of battle was an unnamed Mexican herder just north of the rim by men close to the Tewksburys, who then framed the Grahams. The Graham-Tewksbury feud had just popped off. Now, multiple sources I read say that the Mexican was Basque. Some also said he was Navajo or just Indian. A lot of sources also claim this happened twice, in 1885 and in 1887. And worst of all, every single source mentions that the Mexican man after he was killed, or Basque man or Navajo man, after he was killed, was beheaded. With his head found 15 feet from the rest of him. But Jinx Pyle, he cites sources at the time 
that say, A, he was Mexican, and B, he kept his head. He wrote, uh, Jinx Powell wrote of this murder and Bill Colcord, quote, Payson, Justice of the Peace, William Birch, who rode to Pleasant Valley, said nothing about the herder being beheaded. Nothing in Bill Colcord's considerable written history suggests he was possessed of such a vile nature. Joe Hot, Butch Hot, and this author never heard or read anything about his being beheaded in the history handed down by our respective families. End quote. In every matter concerning the Pleasant Valley War, I believe what the walking encyclopedia Jinx Pyle writes. He has the most and best sources. And he said it right there. History handed down by our respective families. He heard it sometimes from the source of people who were there. The man is in the know. Shortly after this murder, another sheep herder murder occurred on the rim. This one can squarely be placed on the shoulders of Hamp Blevins, by the way. Hamp had gotten into an altercation with a Dags man named Samuel Shull, who was a shepherd. During this kerfuffle, Shull won quite handily, and apparently he beat the snot out of the young Hamp Blevins. As often occurs, this did not sit well with the young Blevins, and not long after... Someone discovered Shoal at his cabin with a nice shotgun hole or holes in his head. The sheriff at that time rode out, scoured the area for clues, but he did not find enough evidence to warrant arresting the young Hamp Blevins. So no one was charged for the murder of the herder. That is two Dags men down. Therefore, two Tewksbury's dead. Both sheep herders, both on the Mogollon rim. But soon, the violence would pour down from the cliffs like blood and fill the valley itself. That sheriff that failed to find any evidence, by the way, he was named Sheriff Billy Mulvenon. You will hear about him shortly. This was his second but not his last time coming to the area of the battlefield of the Tonto Basin War. The place, the valley, the basin, it really did need some sort of law enforcement. By the summer of 1887, so many small families with small plots of land and small herds had been run out, straight up forced out of the valley. Their cattle were stolen at night. Their tools were stolen when they were at church. Their houses were stolen when they were out of town. The hashknifers and enforcers and outlaws, they ran rampant through the valley. And make no mistake, their headquarters were at the Graham's place. That's where they took their stolen goods and their stolen cattle and horses and sheep, or at least the sheep meat. That's where they hung out. That's where they planned their next heist. That's where they drank and schemed. One of the Tewksbury's descendants, a Walter Tewksbury, in the 1940s, would bring to light the grave of two young boys who were killed by the Graham faction while watching the Tewksbury's horse herd in 1887. Two young boys. Jinx said their names aren't on any list that exists of those murdered during the feud. 
which is why in the beginning I said it could be over 50. I mean, murders possibly because of this feud were happening until the 1940s, but I'm getting ahead of myself. How many other unnamed people were killed during this far-reaching vendetta in Arizona? That sounds more like the island of Sicily than the island valley of Pleasant Valley. It wasn't just lives that were taken, though. As I mentioned, like entire cabins, corrals, homes, entire ranches, they would also be burned to the ground, mostly by the Hashknife Gang. Jinx compiled a list of all of the names of people who were burned out of the valley, and it's, it's pretty sad. But of course, a lot of people were also shot out of the valley as well. Some survived, some did not. At one point in 1887, Andy Blevins Cooper would even offer $50 for each half-breed black engine Tewksbury scalp he was given. Things were getting nasty, and they were about to get nastier, like much nastier. In July of 1887, after shooting the sheep herder, after burning all the farms and corrals, and after Andy's letter, which offered a reward for Tewksbury scalps, after all of that, Andy's own father, Mart Blevins, noticed he had some horses missing. Of course, he suspected the Tewksburys, so he took the bait and went on a-looking for these missing horses. And he followed the trail all the way to the next life. Some accounts have him buried up on top of the rim, while other accounts have him shot and killed and at by range hogs. This is a theme that will happen again, surprisingly. On range hogs, Jinx writes that they're, quote, Formidable animals, big and rangy as a black bear, and bearing with the temperament of a cornered badger. He then writes, quote, Anyone who has seen a drove of wild hogs go after a carcass will testify to a bloodlust akin to that of the wolf. End quote. So just absolutely savage animals. Anyone that living in Texas right now can probably also attest to this. Later, a skull, which is the only part of the human body a hog cannot eat, I learned, was found in the hollow of a tree. Leaning against that same tree was Mart's rifle. After some time, but not too much time, Hamp Blevins, angry at the disappearance and probable killing of his father, Hamp called upon his brothers and some hashnivers to join in on the search and to bring some justice to the Tewksburys. On August 9th, the Blevins brothers, Andy, Charlie, and Hamp, along with cowboys and enforcers, um, Jinx lists them all, it's about four other men, they all rode with revenge on their mind. The thing is, though, the Tewksburys were warned. I mean, they knew trouble was coming their way after they spirited away Mart Blevins. But George Newton, Jim Houck, Jim and Ed Tewksbury, and a few others, seven in total, 
They all rode to the first house the Graham gang would have arrived to on this side of the valley, like as they were riding to the Tewksburgs. At that ranch, they got themselves ready. And then the Graham gang, with their hash knife allies, arrived to that ranch, a place owned by a man named George Newton, but a place everyone called the Middleton Ranch. Once at the cabin, the Graham gang, their original plan of burning the cabin down, was foiled when they realized the cabin was full of armed men. They had ridden straight into a Tewksbury trap. Thinking quick, one of the Graham men, to kind of ease the tension, shouted, Let us in, will you? We want something to eat. Instead of George Newton's reply, the man who owned the cabin, the voice of Jim Tewksbury yelled back, quote, We aren't keeping a boarding house here, especially for the likes of you. End quote. Naturally, guns were drawn and shots were fired. Who fired the first shot is unknown, but I imagine as soon as the boys on horseback turned to leave the trap, they were fired upon by those inside. Those inside probably and rightfully figured as soon as these men rode away, they would wait and besiege the cabin from a distance, from a safe distance, behind boulders and trees. The first man hit was Hamp Blevins. Tanner wrote that he was, quote, blasted from his saddle with a bullet in his brain, end quote. The second victim was the hash knife John Payne. He was, apparently, a notorious gunman for the cowboys. But this was his last gunplay. First, his horse got shot out from under him. But as he slithered out from under the beast and staggered back up, he fled on foot. But a bullet ripped through his ear. He stumbled, grabbed his ear in pain, mere seconds before a third and fatal shot dropped him to the dust. Ironically, John Payne was a victim of his very own little war. He was the hashknifer who'd earlier declared that they were going to start one. Yet another of the hashknife boys was shot in the chest after his horse fell on his rifle. But he somehow managed to grab the reins and mount another horse before he galloped away. He would later pass out and fall off the horse, and the horse would continue on. There on the ground, his life slipped away until a cold rain woke him up. He'd survived the bullet that passed through both lungs, and he would move to New Mexico. I'm just laughing because Jink says, in New Mexico, he would participate in yet another range war. Another Graham man was shot in the leg. The bullet would go through his leg and hit his horse, and his horse would die while they were fleeing on the trail. After that, he'd have to walk 30 miles with a gunshot wound. But he would survive. This man would also quit the territory after the shootout. Jinx writes of the aftermath, quote, Two men and three horses lay in front of the Middleton Ranch house. One animal rolled and kicked feebly as life left him. For a time, no one left the house. End quote. Then, cinematically, incredibly, almost unbelievably, after some time, 
and after the adrenaline rush had died down, one man braved an exit of the Middleton cabin to take stock of the carnage outside. Buddy wasn't outside two seconds before rushing back in and slamming the door. He told the group, Y'all ain't gonna believe this, but the hills are teeming with painted-up Indians on horseback. Sure enough, coming down from the hills were 30 Apaches painted for war. But they wouldn't be having their war at the Middleton Ranch, no sir. As soon as they saw the dead and dying horses, the two dead men and the rifle barrels and pistol holes aimed at them from inside the ranch, they gave an Indian yelp and leapt up out there. One of the men in the cabin would later tell his son of the story, and while laughing, he'd say, quote, All you could see was G-strings and horsetails. If anyone wants to pay me to write a screenplay for this entire story, I will give you a masterpiece. When the Graham side returned to bury the bodies a few days later, they would finish their initial plan and they would burn the Middleton Ranch down to the ground. Sometime, just a few days after the Middleton Ranch shootout, the Grahams sent men into the mountains to track down the killers. They found them, too. The Tewksbury gang was in a, quote, rocked-up fortress in the Sierra Anches, end quote. The Grahams intended to keep them there forever. They began with rifle fire, which kept the men pinned down. Then the Graham men guarded their water source which was a spring nearby. I mean, they really intended for this to be their final resting place. But instead, Jim Tewksbury snuck out in the middle of the night and killed the guard at the spring. He then filled everyone's canteens and was preparing to walk back to the fortress when his brother Ed saved his life by shooting and killing a man who was sneaking up behind Jim. I am telling you, this story is so exciting and cinematic. But I mean, it's only getting started. Ten days after the Middleton Ranch shootout, the feud claimed yet another Graham man. But this one had the Graham name himself. While riding through the valley, uh, one source said it was on his way back home from a dance in Phoenix. Another said he was just riding between ranches and was crossing a creek. But in Pleasant Valley, while on his horse, Billy Graham was surprised and shot only a few miles from his home. He'd survive the shooting and ride back home with his intestines nearly dragging the ground, but he would die a day or two later. But not before fingering Ed Tewksbury for his own murder. A cowboy at Billy Graham's house told authorities later that some of his final words were, quote, I saw Ed Tewksbury shoot me. End quote. Well, that may have been what Billy Graham saw. It may have been what really happened. But it ain't what was said had happened. The aforementioned James Houck muddies the waters a bit here. The deputy sheriff, Houck, would later say of the incident that it was justified because he thought it was the brother, John Graham, who he had a warrant out for. He didn't know it was Billy. 
John had allegedly stolen some horses, although there is some doubt as to the veracity of that accusation. It's quite possible Hulk stole the horses himself to frame the Grahams. James Hulk would later say of this shooting, quote, When I first see it was him, I tried to speak to him, but it was of no use. Everybody was carrying a gun them days. As he pulled his gun, I turned loose and shot him. His horse whirled and I shot three or four times. End quote. As Billy lay dying with his intestines hanging out, he fingered Ed Tewksbury and not the deputy sheriff James Houck as the shooter, despite Houck confessing to the shooting. Apparently, though, not many believed the ruse from the deputy. And as Jinx points out, Hulk didn't return from driving a herd of sheep from atop the Mogollon Rim until September 5th. These drives normally take a month, meaning he was most likely on top of the rim with sheep and not down in the valley during the shooting. Ed didn't really inspire confidence either when the authorities came to arrest him and found that he had already fled for the hills. It was time for the Grahams to seek their revenge, and they would seek it two weeks later on the early morning of September 1st. At this time, Jim, John, and Ed Tewksbury, along with a few other of their confederates, had left their ranches and their flocks and cattle and horses, and they were hiding in their mountain stronghold, much like the Apache do. Meanwhile, they left their wives, including John's eight-month pregnant wife, Mary Ann, and their daughter, with J.D. Tewksbury, the elder. Also there was John's mother-in-law, who was also J.D.'s wife. But everyone was at J.D. Tewksbury's because the sons figured, since he'd never been in on the fighting or the feud, it was a neutral or safer, at least, territory. But after weeks of hiding in the mountains... John missed his wife. He needed to see her and their daughter and their unborn child. And other men felt the same. Understandable, but also unfortunate. So it was decided that John and Ed would go down and check on the situation, and they'd be escorted by John Rhodes and Bill Jacobs. Now, at the same time, From the Graham Blevins stronghold rode out a large posse of about 20 men towards J.D. Tewksbury's ranch. The posse included John and Tom Graham, Andy Blevins Cooper, his two brothers, Charlie and John Black Blevins, Mose Roberts, and a bunch more Hashknife boys. In the cabin were Ed, Lydia, Mary Ann, Bertha, and a few other Tewksburys, children included, sons and daughters, as well as John Rhodes and a few others. They had come down from the mountain, remember? J.D. Tewksbury was actually in Prescott. Once the Graham Blevins posse had arrived around 8 in the morning, they hid amongst the rocks and the trees that dotted the hillside and spied down on the comings and goings, which comings and goings eventually included John Tewksbury and William Jacobs, or Bill. They were out grabbing some horses. Neither stood a chance, and both were killed out in the open. One hundred shots were fired at them. William Jacobs took three well-grouped shots to the back, with each bullet breaking his spine. 
John Tewksbury took a bullet to the neck. The coroner found tufts of his own hair in his hands and in his fingernails, indicating the bullet did not kill him quickly and instead inflicted an enormous amount of pain as he ripped at the wound. Their bodies were stripped of their rifles, belts, cartridges, and revolvers. The Graham Blevins faction would continue to stay sheltered and would continue to fire until around 4 p.m. that first day, the 1st of September. When the guns went silent, Marianne was told by Tom Graham that her husband was dead, and so was Bill Jacobs. They yelled the news from the rocks. She then asked, probably through tears, if she could bury him. Tom yelled back, quote, No! The hogs have got to eat them! End quote. So apparently, the Grams and the Blevins had learned of Mart's fate. Revenge was to be served, and the hogs were going to eat it. Inside the cabin, Ed Tewksbury and John Rhodes, they felt helpless but insisted on staying to protect the women and children that were all being besieged by gunfire from the hillside. The siege would last nine days. Nine days. Ed the Lion Killer kept the Graham faction at bay with his deadly shots. And Tom Graham kept the rest of his men from burning down the cabin with everyone in it, thankfully. Eventually, it was decided that someone had to go get help or this would end even worse. Somebody inside the cabin had to leave. Heroically, John Rhodes emerged and he decided he was going to try to make it back to the mountains to some backup. And make it he would. He escaped in the dead of night and rode hard to the other Tewksbury men in the mountains. And then Jim Tewksbury and his men, including Jim Roberts, then rode hard for their homes, while Rhodes rode further on to Payson to grab some help from the law. Help they didn't want, but they definitely needed. Meanwhile, the siege was still going on. Jinks suggests from his incredibly exhaustive research that the bodies of the two dead men they laid on the ground for 10 or 11 days after being shot. The siege lasted a harrowing amount of time. Nine days of being shot at. Eventually, Jim Tewksbury and his men arrived and dug in behind the cabin, and with their fire combined with Ed's dead shots, the Graham Blevins posse was kept at bay. And then even more men were arriving to back up the Tewksburys. But as I mentioned, some of that backup was the law, and obviously neither side wanted that. The siege only lifted once the Grams got word that the badge was on its way. Not only the Grams left, though, but also the Tewksbury men and some of the women, too. When the law arrived in the form of John Meadows, only John Rhodes, Lydia Tewksbury, J.D.'s wife, and her son, Thomas Schultz, were at the cabin. The Justice of the Peace and Coroner John Meadows buried the rotting bodies of Jim Tewksbury and Bill Jacobs. Rather, amazingly, in the middle of the siege that would kill his son and scar his family for life, 
J.D. Tewksbury was in Prescott, and in the middle of the siege on September 8th, he was interviewed by the Prescott Weekly Courier, which published this quote on September 9th, like while the siege was still going on. Quote, The father of the Tonto Basin Tewksbury's is in Prescott and has convinced all who have talked with him that his boys and their friends are in the right. End quote. It is very safe to say news of the death of his son and the siege on his home had not yet reached his ears. Which means it's safe to say and assume that the siege lasted a harrowing nine days. No matter how long it lasted, though, it was long enough for a truly grisly scene to unfold. A scene that would make national headlines and, frankly, shock the newspaper-reading nation at that time. I'll let Tanner from the Old West books describe it. As both sides fired sporadically, the situation took an unexpected grisly turn. A band of half-wild hogs appeared just beyond rifle range and, to the horror of those inside the cabin, began to root and grunt about the bodies of their two fallen comrades, starting to make a meal of them. The Tewksburys called frantically to their assailants, but the Grand Bunch refused to grant a truce for burial or even to allow someone to drive the beasts away. End quote. Charles Perkins, a local store owner who will come back to the story in a minute, but Charles Perkins was with the Justice of the Peace, John Meadows, when they arrived to the scene of the recently lifted siege. Charles Perkins helped to bury the two bodies, and he later told this story. Quote, it was not possible to move them. They were badly torn by the hogs, and decomposition had gone so far that burying them was a most disagreeable task. All we did was dig two very shallow graves and roll the swollen, mutilated bodies into them with our shovels. End quote. The Blevins, then, had gotten their revenge. Immediately after the siege, Jim would infamously say, quote, No damned man can kill a brother of mine and stand guard over him for the hogs to eat him and live within a mile and a half of me. End quote. This was going to be a fight to the death. Sometime after the siege of the J.D. Tewksbury Ranch, the brave and valiant John Rhodes who went to go get help, would not only continue to fight with the Tewksburys up until the very end, but he would become one of them when he would marry Jim's widowed wife, Mary Ann. He'd raise Jim's children as his own with the kids in one hand and a gun in the other. Days after the killing of John and Bill, in a saloon in the town of Holbrook, Arizona, which is a town on the other side of the Mogollon Rim, the north side, and a town directly on I-40 and west of Petrified Forest National Park. In Holbrook, three days after the murders, Andy Blevins Cooper was overheard boasting, bragging even, about being the one who had just killed the Tewksbury man and their friend. And then after this boast, Andy walked across the railroad tracks to a cottage. He, his brother John Blevins, John Black Blevins, John's wife, and a bunch of other friends and their mother were staying. Before long, the news of this boast and of the man being in town, again, that man being the notorious and wanted for cattle rustling, horse thievery, 
and murder that man, Andy Blevins Cooper. But the news of his boast and his whereabouts reached the ears of the newly elected sheriff, Sheriff Commodore Perry Owens. Now, first of all, this man could have his very own episode and probably should, but he won't. I mean, his name alone, Commodore Perry Owens, is fanciful enough. He was not actually a naval captain, by the way, but rather his parents were very partial to the American hero of the War of 1812, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry. Then there's his appearance. I will have a picture of him at the site, but it makes me regret recently cutting my very long hair. He looks like the caricature of a Wild West man. He's got big Wild Bill vibes. I'm envious. And the mustache, the gun belt, the tie, the hair... Amazing. Then there's his story. Actually, before I tell the story, one of the little fun books I have called Wild West Characters by Dale Pierce said of Commodore Perry Owens, quote, While he looked like some foppish dandy or stage actor, his appearance was certainly deceptive, and no one ever laughed at him to his face. End quote. At age 13, Commodore Perry Owens runs away from home, joins the railroad, and becomes a sharpshooting bison hunter who provided meat for his fellow co-workers. And apparently, he was so good with a rifle that he could shoot accurately from the hip, like some kind of Wild West Sean Connery James Bond. He was also ambidextrous and could shoot accurately with both hands. It is said he was able to shoot a can with alternating hands across a field. You can just picture it. He was incredible sounding. He was also flawed, and quite possibly a murderer and a liar. After the railroad, Owens became a cowboy in Oklahoma and New Mexico, before heading out west to Arizona. Now, in Arizona, in the early 1880s, our web of characters becomes entangled, and in Arizona, Commodore Perry Owens became a ranch foreman for the future sheriff deputy James Houck, the same man that would claim to have shot Billy Graham, although he probably did not. Houck will be mentioned again. While acting as Houck's foreman, though, Commodore Perry Owens was accused of and arrested for killing a Navajo boy and then stealing his horses. He was held in jail at Fort Wingate, where the Indian agent wrote, quote, I saw over 25 Indians who have been shot at by them during the past year or two, including an Indian woman, end quote. Them being Hoke and Owens. So the man was not without his faults, possibly murderous faults. And then to entangle the man even more, while working as foreman, you'll never guess who he rode with. Andy Blevins Cooper. The two would steal back horses that were stolen from the Navajos. They would do that together. And oftentimes they would bring back more horses than were stolen. Both are accused of killing Navajos. But a surprisingly short amount of time after that Navajo killing incident, Commodore Perry Owens was himself elected sheriff of Apache County, Arizona. And that was in November of 1886, after running on a platform to end the then rampant corruption within the law enforcement office, but also 
to destroy the rustler hold on that part of the Wild West country at that time. The whole territory had had enough of the rustlers, and every day the newspapers were reporting more compounding crimes and thefts. As Jinx puts it perfectly, quote, The press was covering depredations like a cow pie on a doodle bug, and the public was demanding the law do something. End quote. Newly elected Commodore Perry Owens was just the man to do that something. Or, at least, he thought so. It wasn't just that Andy Blevins Cooper was bragging about killing the Tewksbury men. The reason why he had to finally be put down was because he also had a current warrant out for his arrest for stealing 25 horses from a local Mormon rancher. Andy was also suspected, by now in 1887, of killing two lawmen who had been pursuing him since Texas. He was accused of killing three Navajo men, and he had stolen their horses. He was accused of cattle wrestling. He was accused of cold-blooded murder in Texas. The man was a true outlaw. I mean, he was a renegade. He had a serious rap sheet. He had an evil in him. While it seems the people had had enough as Andy Blevins Cooper, the county board of commissioners gave Commodore Perry Owens 10 days to arrest him or be kicked out of office. I mean, you'd have thought Owens would have already gone after this Andy Blevins Cooper fella, like immediately after taking office. But, like I just mentioned, that's where it gets tricky. Uh, First of all, Andy Blevins Cooper, the outlaw, he was a good shot. He was mean and tough and ornery. There's a good possibility Owens didn't want to die. I mean, who does, right? Secondly, and possibly more importantly to the question of why hadn't Owens gone after this infamous man yet is because they may have been friends, or at least acquaintances. They rode together, stole back and a few extra horses from the Navajos. They shot at and hit Navajos together. They were probably old cowboy buddies who'd ridden together, possibly since like Texas or Oklahoma. It's said they even courted the same woman once upon a time. So it's quite possible that Commodore Perry Owens didn't want to kill or be killed by his old buddy no matter how nasty Andy was. All that was about to change, though, on September 4th, 1887. After arriving to Holbrook, Owens headed to the cottage that the Blevins were renting across the railroad tracks. There were most certainly 12 people in that house, including friends, wives, women, and children, when Commodore Perry Owens arrived. It was 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon. Sheriff Owens himself provides the details of what happened next in the inquests that followed the shooting. Autopsy reports seemingly backed up his crazy Wild West tale. But eyewitness accounts within the house tell a much different story, and a more believable one. It's an insane shootout, however it's told, and it all unfolded in about a minute's time. Commodore Perry Owens testified that as he approached the house, he noticed that it was a full one. He also testified that he saw Andy Blevins Cooper, his old acquaintance, his target. But Andy was in a room in the back of the house, oblivious to Owens' arrival. Sheriff Owens climbed onto the porch and knocked on the front door. The minute begins. With an eight-month-old baby in her arms, Ava Blevins, wife to John Black Blevins, answered the door. Owens asked if Andy was there, and Ava replied with a shout to Andy, Andy! Someone's at the door. She had no idea of Owen's intent. Andy opened a door nearby, looked up, and saw Owens with his rifle at his hip. 
Sheriff Owens said something to the effect of, I want you, Andy. And before he was even done speaking, he let loose a bullet that tore through Andy's stomach. The man dropped to the floor. The blood and gore exploded onto Ava and her eight-month-old. Seconds later, Ava's husband, John Black Blevins, ran out of the house with the family's rifle and shot wildly at Owens. The bullet missed. It hit Andy's horse, which was tied to the tree in the front yard. Owens, after hearing the wild shot and without hesitation, whipped to his right and fired at John. The bullet tore through John's shoulder. John Black Blevins ran back inside, out of the fight. Mose Roberts quit writing his letter in the corner and jumped out of a window on the side of the house. Owens was already backing up from the porch, and from his vantage point he could see the side of the house and Roberts, who was recovering from the jump. Frightened, but unsure of what to do, Mose Roberts turned and ran. Owens put a bullet through Roberts' back. The bullet would explode out of his chest. Roberts fell to the ground but crawled up too and eventually through the back door of the house. Owens would later claim he had a pistol on him when he jumped. Ava said it was planted. From his spot on the street, the sheriff could see Andy crawling around on the floor inside the house. He may have been going for his gun. Commodore Perry Owens put a round through the door at the crawling man and this time the bullet hit Andy in the hip. His movement in the house ceased. Andy's other brother, 15-year-old Sam Houston Blevins, after grabbing Andy's Colt revolver, came running through the front door towards the sheriff. Sam Houston's hands were outstretched. He screamed, I'll get him! Sheriff Commodore Perry Owens put a bullet through Sam Houston Blevins' heart. He fell back and into his mother's arms, where he died instantly. The battle was over. All in less than a minute. It's cinematic. It's heroic. It's tragic. It's the American Southwest. Just more victims of the Pleasant Valley War. Of course, Commodore Perry Owens was hailed as a hero, and his side of the story is very different. Tanner writes the follow-up, quote, Two days later, the coroner's jury ended its investigation and rendered its verdict, finding that Owens had acted, quote, in discharge of his duty, end quote, clearing him of any crime. A local newspaper noted, quote, Outside of a few men, a very few at that, Owens is supported by every man, woman, and child in town, end quote. Not surprisingly, the Blevins side of the story discounted at the time reflects considerably less credit on Commodore Perry Owens. End all quotes. I uh, essentially told a mix of the sides of the story, um, but mostly I told Ava's side of the story. There's just no way Sheriff Owens would have won in a fair fight. So he had to level the playing field by shooting first. As I mentioned earlier, the one who shoots first is often the one who lives to shoot again. Owens told a different tale of everyone having guns and he acted valiantly, when in reality, he acted the only way he could in order to stay alive. Andy would survive in excruciating pain for another day before succumbing to his wounds. Mose Roberts would survive a week before dying. John Black Blevins would recover from the shoulder wound, but he was quickly arrested. Although he was eventually pardoned on his way to jail. They apparently just let him out of the coach and told him to walk home, which he did. Still injured, he nearly died from the walk. He quit his law-breaking days soon afterwards. Sometimes getting shut will do that. Sometimes getting shut will turn you harder. 
After fleeing to the mountains, the Tewksburys and their men stayed up there in the mountains near a spring where they could keep an eye on their flocks and an eye on the Grahams. The Grahams, learning of this hideout, mounted up and secretly crept through the forest early in the morning to kill their enemies. But Jim Roberts of the Tewksburys saw the Grahams coming and yelled for everyone to get up and start shooting, hurry! Lead poured into the forest and whizzed between the attackers who hid behind the trees and attempted to fire back. One man, Henry Middleton, unrelated to the previously mentioned Middleton who owned the ranch of the first real shootout. Well, Henry Middleton, the hash knifer, was shot in both legs and both leg bones were shattered. Another of the Graham faction had been shot through the calf. Eventually, I mean, having the low ground and being shot at by the likes of the Tewksburys, the lion hunters, it was enough to send the men fleeing. Although, they, in their hurry, they left both of their injured men on the hills. But later in the evening, after the sun had set, the Graham men came back with a wagon and loaded up their injured comrades. Some of these men that came back to the, like, to the shootout, some of these men were Tom and John Graham. And according to Jim Roberts, the Tewksbury's men, quote, sat right above them on that little sugarloaf hill and saw them every move they made and didn't fire a shot at them, end quote. I doubt the Graham men knew they were spared in this instance. And I bet the Tewksbury's wish they hadn't have spared them. This most recent shootout, which would see Middleton succumbing to his wounds and dying. But this newest eruption of violence and death combined with the shootout at Holbrook and the other distressing events in the region. I mean, there were so many at this time. So many unmarked graves and deaths. Burnings. It all forced, all of this, forced the territorial government of Arizona to finally act. And on September 10th, 1887, the territorial governor, Conrad Zulick, ordered Sheriff William Mulvenon of Prescott to round up a posse, ride into Pleasant Valley, and arrest everyone he came into contact with on both sides. It did not matter if they were Tewksbury or Graham or Hashknife or friends. Just round them all up and arrest them. This war had to come to an end. And now, in reality, over in Washington, this little here range war and the continuous Apache murders and escapings from the reservation, like the rampage of the Apache Kid, were all of these were causing Arizona to be looked over when it came to statehood. The lizard pe or the people in D.C. were leery of letting this quite uncivilized, dangerous, and downright backwards territory filled with outlaws, Indians, rustlers, gunfighters, sheep herders, and Mormons. That strange territory of Arizona. D.C. was not thrilled at the prospect of them joining the Union. So to the eyes of the territorial government who wanted that D.C. money, something had to be done. Jinx writes, quote, As faith will move a mountain, so will enough public pressure move a government. End quote. So real quick, let's talk about the governor, the territorial governor. I learned this from Jinx Pyle. The governor, Conrad Zulick, when he was appointed governor by President Grover Cleveland, it was for two main reasons. The first was because the president just didn't know anyone except him who wanted the job. And second, 
Zulik was in a bind. And what better way to get out of a bind than to be appointed governor of Arizona by the President of the United States? That bind, you may be wondering? He was in jail in Sonora, Mexico. I'm not sure on what charges, but he was slipped out of there in the dead of night and coyoted on over the border and set up in Prescott. Ah, these Wild West characters, man, I tell you what. We used to be an interesting nation, that's for sure. Interesting and dangerous. I wouldn't mind returning to something like that. As for Sheriff Mulvinen, Jinx pointed out something that the other sources failed to mention. Okay, well, Jinx does that for every single part of this story. So, but in this particular instance, Jinx shined a light on the fact that this wasn't Sheriff Mulvinen's first time coming to Pleasant Valley to clean it up. It turns out he'd attempted to clean out this den of rustlers and murderers earlier in 1887 after the murder of the Mexican sheep herder, which started all of this. Apparently, the sheriff and his men were camping at the top of the rim, getting ready to descend into chaos with the hopes of stopping things before they started. But in the middle of the night, sitting around their campfire, Sheriff Mulvinen and his posse were surrounded by men who stayed in the trees and in the dark. I imagine they could hear hammers being cocked, twigs being broken, horses neighing, seeing shadows moving through the evergreen branches. But one rider emerged from the dark and spooky forest, a forest I have talked about before. This is like the exact spot I saw that elk, like where they're camping is miles from where I saw that elk. If you remember what I'm talking about. Well, I don't even I don't I don't even want to remember. But this was pretty much very near that place I saw that elk on top of the Mogollon Rim. From the shadows, though, emerged one rider who strode to the fire and told the lawmen that this place didn't need no law. This here war was between us two, and quote, when we get it settled, if there's anyone left, we will send for you to come in. End quote. Man, what an amazing line. If there's anyone left, we'll sin for you. How right this writer would be, though, unfortunately. But uh, this dark and mysterious man then told the lawmen that they had no quarrels with the sheriff or his men, so he better just go on, get lost, go on. If he didn't get going, he'd lose, and he'd die. And it would be rather regrettable, but it'd be necessary. The sheriff... A hardened, serious, and tough man was not to be dissuaded. And he told him that, heck, if me and my posse couldn't clean this place up, then I'll call in the militia. The dark, mysterious man then said to militia, quote, They couldn't find an army in here if the army wanted to hide. There's a bunch over on that hill right now looking straight at you, but you don't even know who it is, and never will. End quote. I doubt the mysterious man was bluffing. But after he said that, he rode away and his men dispersed. Uh, I bet that posse did not sleep that well that evening. The sheriff, though, he ignored the dark man on the horse, the man that was no doubt Jim Tewksbury. But the sheriff ignored the Tewksburys only to be accosted the following day by the Grams when they and a large, well-armed group of men rode up on the sheriff and his posse and told him to get lost. This was not his fight. Now the sheriff, 
realizing it was two separate groups of people that told him to leave and realizing he was far outnumbered, he decided to leave. And then he and his men vowed to never speak of the fact that they were there again. I only am able to tell you this on account of the oral tradition passed down to Jinx Pao. Now, sure, as I have said a few times before, oral traditions aren't worth the paper they're written on. But as Jinx puts it, the gist is, is there. Like, for sure, the quotes from Jim around the dark campfire can't be 100% accurate. But the story remains the same. And that story is, this here posse, the lawman, Sheriff Mulvenon, was putting together, this was not his first foray into the battlefield of the Tonto Basin. So, Sheriff Mulvenon and 25 to 40, not sure, but 25 to 40 heavily armed deputies from Yavapai, Gila, Apache, and Maricopa counties rode themselves into the valley and installed themselves in an old fort which had been converted into a store. And they somehow did it secretly without being noticed. This store, the Perkins store, to be exact, the owner of the store was the one who buried the two bodies of Jim and Bill at J.D.'s ranch, and he also buried Hamp Blevins at the Middleton ranch. I mean, the man was really in the thick of it. He was between the two sides of Graham and the two experiences, like literally positioned himself in the middle on this road in this old fort. And yes, that old fort was built to defend the people against Apache raids. But by these days, those raids were no longer a threat, really. This range war, though, was definitely a threat to the safety of the region and its people. It's also important to note that this Perkins store had a stone wall across the street that was being built. So a low stone wall, probably around five feet tall. So just kind of picture it. An old fort turned into a store with a road across the road is a low fence all around them are the beautiful hills of the pleasant valley down the street is the graham's ranch you can see it from the store along with the sheriff was a man named thomas jacobs who was the brother of the deceased bill jacobs the one shot with john tewksbury and subsequently eaten by hogs and then buried by perkins Instead of just blitzkrieging the valley like a thunderstorm and rounding everyone up, the sheriff had a plan. And once he arrived at the store, he put that sneaky plan into motion. He sent out six men to ride by the Graham Ranch to kind of get them suspicious. So the ringleaders, hopefully, would come out and investigate. Maybe even, you know, assault these new men in town so that they could be arrested. Meanwhile, Sheriff Mulvenon set up a good portion of his men in the store and a large portion of his posse behind the wall across the street from the old fort. Well, the sheriff's plan worked, and before long, two shots rang out across the valley from Al Rose's house, which was answered by three shots coming from the Graham's house. Some sort of signaling system, apparently. So shortly after the smoke signals, John Graham and Charles Blevins rode out of the ranch and up to the store to see what was going on. 
They could tell something just wasn't right. They circled the store a few times, talking low towards one another. They then rode over to the five-foot wall across the street, and both men cautiously stood up on their stirrups and peered over. Only barrels and hard eyes met their questioning gazes. But at that exact moment, the two men, Graham and Blevins, at the exact moment that they were high up on their stirrups, legs straight, using one hand to hold onto the stirrup and the other to reach for a gun as they leaned over the wall, the sheriff himself emerged with a double-barreled shotgun. Put up your hands, boys. I want you. The two men, instead, reached for their guns. Sheriff Mulvinen's shotgun put a solid hole in Blevins' back before he could react, and he was dead before he even hit the ground. I read somewhere he had six or seven holes in him, really. The sheriff's other barrel hit Graham's horse in the neck, but as the horse fell, one of the men from behind the wall stood and fired a rifle shot, which put Graham down. But he wasn't yet dead. No, he actually died hours later. But he almost died right there when a man came from behind the wall and aimed his rifle over the dying Graham man. That man, that sheriff deputy, was none other than the man who took the fall for killing Billy Graham, James Houck. It's at this point that Houck and Sheriff Mulvenon walked over to the dead or dying Blevins and attempted to put another shot in him before they were stopped and dissuaded to from the rest of the posse. The Sheriff meant business. The shooting must have alerted Tom Graham because he took off for the hills. He wouldn't be seen again for some time. After the shooting, the posse lined up men in a row that was a hundred yards long. And this line of deputies armed with rifles and pistols walked in unison to the Graham's house. But before they could surround it, John's wife came out, walked over to Mulvinen, and collapsed at his feet. She would tell the sheriff whatever he wanted to know. No shootout occurred. When the posse arrived back at the store, her husband, John Graham, was dead. Next up, the sheriff and his posse rode for the Tewksburys. But, curiously, their arrest went much different. And that's because the sheriff had actually sent a rider over to their ranch to inform them that he had warrants, he had just arrested a Graham, which was a little lie, and that he and his posse would be there soon to arrest them. When Sheriff Mulvinen arrived at the Tewksburys, instead of a shootout, Ed and Jim Tewksbury and five others were patiently waiting. I'll let Tanner describe what happens next. Quote, they surrendered without protest, but were outraged to learn that Tom Graham was still free. Within a few days of their hearing in Prescott, the Tewksburys were out on bond and back in Pleasant Valley, at liberty to pick up the feud again. End quote. That obviously brings up some suspicions in my mind. And the fact that the sheriff sent out word to the Tewksburys, who surrendered peacefully. But then they were angry when they learned Tom had gotten away. Almost as if they were assured that Tom would be taken care of if they surrendered. Like, maybe they'd worked something out beforehand. Then there's the appearance of the Tewksbury's loyal sheriff deputy, James Houck, who may have killed John Graham and who almost shot Blevins again before being stopped by the apparently startled posse. Why were they startled, you may ask? Well, it appears, in testimony that emerged later, 
the sheriff, Mulvinen, had arranged with some of the posse, but not all. I mean, these men were sent there to arrest the Grahams and Tewksburys, not shoot them in the street. Well, some men testified that there was a secret understanding among the sheriff and some of the posse members and deputies to not take any Grahams alive. In True West Magazine, I even read that the governor gave the word to the sheriff to take no Grahams alive. He apparently said, quote, Kill them, and no one will be hurt for it. End quote. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Apparently, the sheriff passed this down to some, but not all, of his men. And then later, some of these men also testified that the sheriff never told the two men, Graham and Blevins, to drop their guns. But instead, when they peered over that wall, distracted, they were shot with that shotgun in cold blood. A grand jury actually indicted Sheriff Mulvenon, but he was found not guilty. Later in life, Sheriff Mulvenon would serve in the Arizona Territorial Legislature before opening a brewery in Prescott. He built that brewery after the 1900 Prescott Fire, which is a fire my wife and I learned about, um, while eating a delicious meal in town a while back at the Palace Restaurant and Saloon. That brewery the sheriff would open is now the Gurley Street Grill, and it is on the National Register of Historic Places. At this point in our story, the autumn of 1887, Tom Graham, who had fled the ranch in Pleasant Valley, actually shows up just outside of Phoenix, when on October 8th, the 33-year-old man marries the 17-year-old daughter of the local Tempe, Arizona, Reverend Mr. Milton. The marriage would not last long, um, on account of Tom not lasting too much longer himself. But before his demise, Tom Graham sold his Graham ranch in the valley, bought some land in Tempe, and then turned himself into authorities? Yeah, he just walked into the Phoenix Sheriff's office and asked if maybe, hey, is there a warrant out for my arrest per chance? Like, I'm ready to give up this dangerous vendetta life. Just arrest me. On October 16th, Sheriff Mulvinen himself came from Prescott and arrested Tom Graham and then took him back to Prescott to stand before a grand jury. The hearing was to take place on the same day that the recently also arrested by Mulvinen, Ed and Jim Tewksbury were to be tried. The trial was set for December of that year. And, obviously, all men were found guilty and hanged by the neck. Oh, wait, no, that's just not how it worked at all. No witnesses showed up, and after two postponements, all charges were dropped. Like, truthfully, by the end of this like whole feud, no member of either the Graham family or Tewksbury family would ever be convicted of a crime. And it's mostly because the survival rate of the two families was next to zero, but for now... The three men, Ed Tewksbury, Jim Tewksbury, and Tom Graham, were free to live their lives in peace. But, of course, peace was not in the cards. Back at Pleasant Valley, a slew of murders, lynchings, and hooded assassinations were taking place. The nearby town of St. John's, its St. John's Herald, published the following regarding this new wave of violence. Quote, 
When the people finally make up their minds they have stood it long enough, their mode of dealing with these outlaws will be as swift and terrible as they have been patient and enduring. End quote. How very prophetic. William Bonner of the Graham faction would be killed by the Tewksbury men after the trial. Although he had recently been taken to train robbery, so he wasn't missed. One of the Tewksbury's allies, George Newton, he drowned in the Salt River after a meeting with Ed Tewksbury. His widow offered a $10,000 reward for anyone who could recover the body. It was never found. It was said Ed swam under every cave in the river to find him. The people of the valley were reaching their limit. One of the Graham's allies, Al Rose, had actually been rounded up and arrested by Sheriff Mulvenon, but his charges were dropped, and before long, he was back in Pleasant Valley. And once back, Al Rose immediately started running his mouth and talking a big talk about murdering the Tewksbury's and about how there was a brand new widow in the valley. He then received a note to leave the valley immediately or else. He would apparently wait too long, and one morning while feeding his horses, he would be surrounded by about ten hooded men and shot up to eleven times, including a shotgun blast to the face. He would not survive. So it is here that I must introduce a puzzling and mysterious part of the Pleasant Valley Tonto Basin War and that puzzling part is the Committee of Fifty. Tanner says they were, quote, formed to aid the forces of law and order, chiefly, it seems, by killing anyone who was deemed a threat to peace, end quote. Phyllis de la Garza, in her Apache Kid, said of the committee, quote, lynchings, shootings, ambush night riders, and hooded vigilantes calling themselves the Committee of Fifty turned the Tonto Rim into a battleground, end quote. I mean, I would definitely say it was already a battleground, but they certainly stacked the bodies. So a bunch of hooded vigilantes shooting and stringing people up in the valley after years of deaths, unmarked graves, and shootouts. Jinx Pyle says of this, quote, The vigilante tools of trade were the gun and the rope, and were equal in the danger they dealt. The guns went off, the ropes went on. The result? was a permanent six-by-three chunk of real estate. End quote. It's this committee of 50 whose members have never been, like, positively identified. But it's this committee of 50 that turned up the heat in the war. I mean, were these men, like, sheriff deputies? Were they ex-Confederates and Indian fighters turned cattlemen? Were they two competing groups of hooded men taking each other out like warring groups of ninja knights? Jinx Pyle compiles a very good and compelling list of the men, men who lived on the fringes of the valley, who were sick of losing cattle and horses, men with violent ties to history, men who were tied to the law, and men who were tied to the feud. Before I read uh, Jinx Pyle's book, I actually compiled my own list of possible people who were part of the Committee of 50, because the two sources I read just mentioned absolutely no one. And... I'm proud to say I got it pretty right. Because as usual, Jinx Pile just, you know, he uses the best sources and he compiles a great list, which is pretty much as follows. One of the men, 
no doubt was the infamous gun for hire deputy and just all around cowboy legend Tom Horn, who is getting his own Roadrunner exclusive episode very soon. I just got three books over him, including his autobiography that he wrote in jail before he was hung. Or is it hanged? I never remember. So under the masks, Tom Horn. Another masked man was no doubt the deputy and friend to Commodore Perry Owens, James Houck. He had participated in so many of the other violent goings on in the area during the war. I mean, how many times have I already mentioned him? I would not doubt that he was one of the vigilantes. And also, I did not read this in Jinx Pile. He did not say this name, but I think it's I think it's very believable. Commodore Perry Owens himself. I would not doubt for a second that he was also under the mask. Uh, even Ed the Lion Killer Tewksbury. He wrote under the mask. That's 100% positive. I mean, maybe not every single time that they wrote out because they will write out a lot and they will lynch a lot of people and they will shoot a lot of people. But Ed, the lion killer Tewksbury, was definitely part of the Committee of 50 at one point. Which, yeah, that makes the Committee of 50 definitely not neutral, but another man under the mask and the man who, without a doubt, 100% organized the entire committee in the first place was a man, an ex-Confederate colonel, named Colonel Jesse Ellison. He even admitted to it later, but he had a lot of men that followed his lead, too. Including the most important man for our story, who was under the mask. He is the reason I'm even doing this episode in the first place. He was mentioned one time in Phyllis de la Garge, well, for like a couple pages in Phyllis de la Garge's Apache Kid. I read his story. It mentions that he was part of the Pleasant Valley War. I read about the Pleasant Valley War, and now we're doing this episode just because of this man, Glenn Reynolds, the soon-to-be sheriff of Gila County. Author of The Apache Wars, The Hunt for Geronimo, The Apache Kid, and The Captive Boy Who Started the Longest War in American History. The author, Paul Andrew Hutton, an author I quoted from quite a bit in The Apache Kid episode and someone I will quote a ton from in the large Apache series because he is one of, like, 15 books that I'm reading for that. He called Sheriff Glenn Reynolds, quote, a remarkable specimen of the pioneer stock that settled the American Southwest, end quote. So let's take a slight detour to the incredibly interesting and brave man that is Glenn Reynolds, and through him, Colonel Ellison. Glenn Reynolds' start was in Texas in 1853. That was when he was born which made him only a boy when the Civil War broke out. But that did not stop him from becoming a fighter and a killer at such a young age. You see, when the war ensued, the men in his family and in his town had to go fight the northern invaders, which left him, Glenn Reynolds, at home, alone to defend his family from the now restarted and quite deadly Comanche attacks and raids. The Comanche had been on the defense right up until the Civil War began, and then they noticed that the Americans kind of stopped paying attention to them. Well, they took advantage of that, and they began raiding again in Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Mexico, even Colorado, I believe, just the whole Southwest in general, as did the Apaches. But So Glenn Reynolds bravely defended his Texas home from Comanches until the war ended. Then, naturally, 
he grew up and became a cowboy. He is a Texan after all. And he was a cowboy right up until he was elected sheriff of Throckmorton County in Texas. And Throckmorton County is not far from Abilene. It's south of Wichita Falls, which is on the border of Oklahoma, and west of Fort Worth. During this time, Reynolds met up with an older Texas Ranger and Confederate Colonel named Jesse W. Bud Ellison. And by this time, Ellison had become a cattleman himself. Not a cowboy, but a rancher. But this older cattleman and ex-Confederate, he had had enough of Texas. At that time, barbed wire was going up every which way and closing off heretofore open range, which obviously caused hard feelings and harder actions. Range wars all throughout Texas and basically the entire western cattle country of the United States began erupting around this time. Which makes sense as people go out west and all of those men and cowboys were ex-soldiers or at least led men during the war. Plus the Indians, they were still there. They were still fighting. Range wars were just inevitable. So by 1887, the colonel was wanting to get out of the Lone Star State out of the violence, and out of the way of the dang fences. Colonel Ellison was quoted as saying, If I stay longer, I'll have to gunfight my neighbors, and I don't want to do that. End quote. I've been there, brother. Not because of cattle, but sometimes neighbors. Yeah, make you want to draw down. Unfortunately, the place Colonel Ellison chose and decided to move to wasn't much better off. That place being Pleasant Valley. Back in Texas, Colonel Ellison, his quite large family, along with Glenn Reynolds and his family, and two to three thousand heads of cattle, two hundred horses, enough cowboys, and and wagons filled with furniture, household necessities, and just about everything they couldn't get out in the far west, including the kitchen sink. They all boarded a train for Arizona. Once in Arizona, specifically at a place known as Bowie Station, which I believe is just north of the Chiricahua Mountains and south of I-10. Well, once at the station, as the large Texan group unloaded and prepared to head to their new home, someone or some group purposefully stampeded the colonel's herd. And they did that in the hopes of you know, stealing a few for themselves. That was just kind of the way of the land back then. Apparently, this stampeding caused such a fracas through the town of Bowie that windows were shattered, houses were knocked off their foundations, fences were smashed, clotheslines were torn up and strewn about. Just the whole place was a wreck. The colonel would later call it, quote, the damnedest melee I ever saw, end quote. And this man saw the Civil War, and he was a Texas Ranger, so it must have been quite the mess. With the help of Glenn Reynolds and other hardened and tough men and cowboys, the Texans regathered their scattered cattle and headed on foot towards the Tonto Basin with their women and their children and their kitchen sinks. They were going right smack into the jaws of the Pleasant Valley War. But first, and it is worth mentioning, 
this further slight detour um, before they get to their future homes in, in the war zone. The Texans ran into another annoying snag. So they already had their uh, cattle stampeded and now they have to put up with a filthy bureaucrat. Right outside of the San Carlos Reservation, a place my roadrunners will recognize on account of it featuring heavily in the Apache Kid series. But at the San Carlos Apache Reservation, the ex-Confederate Colonel Ellison and his group of cowboys, including Glenn Reynolds, they ran into a little man, just a little guy, named Indian Agent Kloom. On the outskirts of the reservation, Kloom announced that I apologize, but it seems you cannot pass through here since you don't have the necessary legal permit to herd your cattle through the reservation. And, oh, I am just so sorry, but that permit does indeed take 90 days to obtain. And, oh, my goodness, I am just so sorry to again tell you that if you decide to forego the permit and just head yourselves and your cattle right through the reservation, oh, it seems very apparent to me that the Apache will just go ahead and just stampede your cattle while, you know, while you're moving them. You'll you'll lose a few for sure. You might not get them all back. I am so sorry. Well, obviously, the colonel simply could not abide by this unfortunate, annoying turn of events that he no doubt blamed on the opposing side of the war he had previously fought against and the fact that they won. This was inevitably the future of a nanny bureaucratic government after all, right? Sorry, got that out of the way. So the colonel looked to Glenn Reynolds. And the two had a little sideline. There, they discussed the next course of action, which ended up being inviting Clume to stay the night in their camp and enjoying their hospitality, their Texan Southern hospitality. They did this, no doubt, at the point of a gun. And, not surprisingly, Clume accepted. And it seems Clume had just like such a good time, and he just felt so strongly about his new friendship that the next morning, Kloom had a total change of heart. And he not only waived the silly permit, but he decided to escort the entire group the whole way to Globe. Globe, Arizona. You know, so he could personally make sure no stampeding happened. Now, what a nice fella. And no stampeding happened. And then anywhere from 1,800 to 3,000 cattle... I saw both numbers. Although Jinx does say 1,800, and I'm always inclined to believe Jinx, especially when he cites like numbers to back up his claims. He's very good about that. Anyways, a whole bunch of cattle in 1885 arrived to what would soon be the hottest range roar in the West. As a matter of fact, later, the colonel would say of his time in the valley, quote, you couldn't leave a horse in your own barn at night and be sure of finding him there the next morning. End quote. The Texans' final destination was actually a place just 18 miles northeast of Payson, Arizona. Now, if you ain't been to Payson, it is absolutely beautiful. It's at the top end of the Pleasant Valley, way up in the mountains, far above Phoenix and the Saguaros. It's much cooler, and the mountain alpine air is clean and refreshing. It sits just below the Mogollon Rim. The last time I was there, my friend, my wife, and I hit up the Tonto Natural Bridge. It was winter, so there was ice and a little snow, but the water still flowed down the falls and dripped through the massive open archway caused by the bridge. It's a 
very beautiful spot. I actually wanted to move to Payson, but the wife vetoed it, and I'm glad she did. So this big old group of Texans arrive north of Payson before Glenn Reynolds takes his share and heads further east to his own plot of land in the Sierra Anchas on the border of Pleasant Valley. Practically, like on top of it. Which, much to his dismay, the place was already enveloped in the Pleasant Valley War and was already rife with cattle wrestling. But as we just learned... Colonel Ellison is a man who gets stuff done. And Glenn Reynolds, the ex-sheriff of Throckmorton County, Texas, he's a man who follows the colonel's lead. Now, I'm sure the colonel and the ex-sheriff, I'm sure they tried to steer clear of any participation in the war. But Glenn Reynolds, he soon found out that there was just no way to escape the feud's vortex. And eventually he would be sucked in. Unfortunately, it's under heartbreaking circumstances. When Glenn Reynolds moved to Pleasant Valley, he was already married to a woman named Gussie, and the two had five children. Does does everyone back then just have five children? I'm I'm the oldest of five. Maybe I'll have five children. I hope my wife does not listen to this episode. Oh, she will. So, Gussie, Glenn Reynolds, and their five children, they all moved to Pleasant Valley. But it wasn't long before Gussie and Glenn's baby, George, contracted a serious illness. The best chances for George's survival laid in a medicine, and that medicine was in Globe, all the way down the Pleasant Valley, some 50 miles. At this time... During the height of the vendetta, anybody riding the hills at night was liable to go missing or get killed. Think of all the deaths and disappearances that have happened so far, and I haven't even covered a sliver of them. Unable to go himself, Glenn Reynolds sent a rider, a cowboy who worked for him. He sent him to Globe to retrieve the medicine. Phyllis de la Garza covers what happens next. Quote, The Mercy Rider tied his spur rowels to prevent jingling, while at the same time patting his horse's hooves. But riding the lonely trail that night, the rider was shot and wounded, and did not return to the ranch. The baby died. Glenn Reynolds, the ex-sheriff, could no longer sit idly by. Which brings us to the aforementioned killing of Al Rose. Now, I'm not sure if Al is the one who shot the rider that was sent by Glenn, but it could potentially make sense, and I say that I say it that way, because when questioned about the murder by authorities, Ed Tewksbury accused Glenn Reynolds of the murder. This was years later, by the way. Ed said that Glenn actually shotgunned Al in the face before they hanged him. The county coroner would actually remark that the wounds on Al Rose's face were consistent with buckshot. Of course, Glenn never faced trial for the murder, because this was not until later. And in fact, Glenn would soon become sheriff of Gila County. But this may not actually be the angle at all. And it's 
very probable that Ed Tewksbury shotgunned Al Rose in the face after Al Rose ran his big old mouth by bragging that there was a new widow in the valley. That widow being Mary Ann, Ed's dead brother's widow, who would Mary Rhodes, who, by the way, Rhodes, Rhodes, absolutely John Rhodes, wore a mask for the Committee of Fifty. But Ed Tewksbury very likely killed Al Rose and blamed it on Glenn Reynolds later in life. And he did that because, uh, I hate I hate to spoil it for you, but uh, as you'll see in the next Apache Kid episode, episode number two, Reynolds is not long for this world. And when Ed told people that it was Glenn, Glenn Reynolds was already dead. But right now in our story, Glenn Reynolds is alive. After the death of his son and the murder of Al Rose, Glenn moved his family out of the valley and into Globe, where he ran for sheriff in November of 1888. There, the newcomer to the valley defeated the incumbent and the former sheriff and put on the star yet again. How involved he was in the recent and upcoming killings is unknown... But he was involved. His boss, Ellison, his best friend, the old confederate, he organized the Committee of Fifty. So there's just no doubt in my mind that Glenn Reynolds was maybe even number two in the Committee of Fifty. But he was neither, he was a partisan of neither faction, really although he did loyally follow Colonel Ellison. Phyllis de la Garza writes of Glenn Reynolds and his lack of a side when she wrote, quote, In a number of sources, Glenn Reynolds' name comes up in connection with the Pleasant Valley Vendetta. There is some disagreement as to how involved he was with the vigilante writings and killings. Reynolds, at various times, in his Texas days, raised both sheep and cattle. He even carried a beautiful pocket watch given to him by friends back in Texas that had both sheep and cattle figures engraved on the gold case. Most accounts describe Reynolds as, quote, brave, honorable, Christian gentleman, law-abiding, unimaginative, family man. End all quotes. The symbolism of the pocket watch having both sheep and cattle is just pure gold. Seriously. And I think the pocket watch itself is gold. I could not have written it better myself. Again, I'll write you the best dang screenplay ever. Forced to kill for vengeance on account of his dead infant son, who was murdered over a feud he had nothing to do with, forced to take action and become sheriff. On top of all that, Glenn Reynolds donned the mask at night to do what the badge didn't allow him to. But backing up a little bit, the summer before Glenn Reynolds became sheriff, the summer of 1888, so just a couple months really, but during that summer, the masked Committee of 50 lynched three more grand partisans. More lynchings followed, as well as the aforementioned drowning. Tanner writes of this summer and the following autumn when he wrote, quote, By then, lynching was so rife that one rancher recalled seeing men, quote, hanged all up and down Cherry Creek with maggots dropping out of them, end quote. 
In their zeal, the grim crusaders sometimes equated suspicion with guilt. More than one stranger passing through the valley was hastily strung up for being unable to explain his presence to the satisfaction of the committee. End quote. Now, I don't actually buy that last part, where innocent men were sent swinging by the committee. The Committee of Fifty was very careful with their targets and usually only hanged horse or cattle thieves. I mean, they only hanged people that they could prove were guilty, but who would get out in court. So, vigilante, extrajudicial. I mean, they knew that the law couldn't do anything, so they did it themselves. In the end... The lynchings, they worked. The terror of the valley switched from plaguing its residents to plaguing the original terror perpetrators themselves. Cattle theft slowed. Shootings practically ceased, unless it was done by the committee. At one point in these months of lynchings, the range foreman for the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, the head of the hash snipers, his name was Ed Rogers, he apparently hopped a train for the east and never returned. But he did send word back to please send his horse to join him. It's even been stated that Tom Graham's move to the Phoenix area where he got married. That was on account of getting a similar note as Al Rose. And that note said, leave the valley or else. Well, Tom Graham listened. That left only the Tewksburys, you know, the two that were left in the valley. By the end of 1888, the feud, the vendetta, the violence had began to sputter out between at least the two families. And it helped that very few Tewksbury's and Graham's were even allowed to commit any more violence. Jim Tewksbury was dying of slow consumption or tuberculosis and had, interestingly enough, moved himself to Tempe, Arizona. I wonder why. I mean, is it the dry climate to help with his TB? No, of course not. He moved to Tempe to kill Tom Graham. But he would never get the chance. Uh, he got too dang sick, and then he died on December 3rd of 1888. So, Ed Tewksbury is the sole surviving Tewksbury. Tom Graham is the sole surviving Graham. The only two left to continue the feud were the two men who had met at that shop in Globe way back in 1882. The vendetta wasn't quite over yet, though. For years, from 1889 to 1892, men involved with Tom Graham, who again was down in Tempe, but he kept his holdings up in the valley that whole time. But for years, men that involved themselves with the Grams continually found themselves shot or hanged. An occasional Tewksbury man would end up dead as well. One in particular died by drowning. And this, what it's the same drowning that I mentioned before, but it seriously hurt Ed Tewksbury. This man, George Newton, his death may have sealed Tom Graham's death, Tom Graham's fate. Although the flames of the feud had died down, the embers were still hot enough to cause a spark. And the final spark erupted on August 2nd of 1892. For over three years now, the recently married and settling down Tom Graham 
had lived in Tempe, Arizona, seemingly escaping justice. Just He was just ranching with his small family on his modest farm while keeping his holdings up in the valley, of course. But for some unexplainable reason, throughout these three years, the man, Tom Graham, couldn't leave well enough alone. And apparently, the entire time he was down there, he continually sent menacing and taunting letters to the Tewksbury's. Mary Ann Rhodes, uh, you know, who used to be Mary Ann Tewksbury, she even said of these letters that Tom could have lived out his whole life in Tempe, but for these stupid letters. On the morning of August 2nd, two young ladies, or two girls, not sure, but two young ladies spied two horses and two men seemingly hiding behind a thicket near their home. And they lived in Tempe. They, the two girls, then noticed the two men raise their rifles. And to their horror, as they followed the aim of the guns, they realized the rifles were pointed towards a man driving his four-horse team in a wagon. Ed Tewksbury put the rifle to his shoulder and called out, Tom Graham! Tom looked back at the hidden Avengers, noticed the guns, and tried to duck. Ed fired the bullet, which tore through Tom's back. It entered at his kidneys, wound its way up his vertebrae, shattering a few of them, and then exiting out his neck. He either fell into the street or fell into his wagon. John Rhodes and Ed Tewksbury fled for the hills. The two young women were home with Tom Graham as he lay dying. He would blame Ed Tewksbury and John Rhodes before death. But he would die. And now the last of the Grahams were gone. Immediately, the alarm went out and the law was in hot pursuit of the two murderers. Eventually, after a 10-mile chase through the rocky and thorny Arizona wilderness, John Rhodes was caught, arrested, and taken prisoner. Edward Tewksbury was arrested at his ranch in Pleasant Valley as he was working. He proclaimed his innocence. He had no idea Tom Graham was dead. He hadn't thought about that man in ages. The law didn't believe him. And then they secretly smuggled him back to Phoenix before anyone could lynch the last remaining Tewksbury. I will now quote from the August 11th, 1892 edition of the Arizona Gazette for the next bit of absolutely unbelievable drama in this unbelievable and relentless feud. The courtroom was quieter than it had been, and even the voice of the cross-examiner was less harsh than usual. Suddenly, a rustle of skirts was heard. Miss Graham, widow of the murdered man, rushed across the closed-in place. She had been sitting quietly near the reporter's table and reached the seat of the prisoner before any of the spectators fully appreciated her intention. In her hand, concealed by a black silk reticule, she held a pistol. Before Rhodes even knew she was in his vicinity, the crazed woman thrust the cocked pistol to his side and pulled the trigger. She aimed for the heart. But the hammer in his descent caught upon a handkerchief on the edge of the cloth bag and the cartridge was not exploded. This seems to have been accomplished in less than a second. 
She tugged frantically to release the hammer of the revolver when Sheriff Montgomery grasped her by the wrists and bore her back into the arms of her father, Reverend W.A. Melton, who had followed her from where they had been sitting. He also tried to take the revolver away, but the aid of several deputies was necessary before the clenched hands of the woman could be opened and the revolver secured. Its cloth impediment was still attached. Rhodes, taken by surprise, was for a moment quiet, then sprang toward the corner of the courtroom, raising his chair as a shield against further attack from the woman or anyone in the audience. End quote. Now that scene from The Dark Knight comes to mind. It's a surprisingly emotional story, really. So, Miss Graham had failed to kill her husband's killer. And then, even worse for her... John Rhodes produced a convincing alibi, and his famous and expensive attorney, Thomas Fitch, successfully got John Rhodes off for the murder. It's worth mentioning when I say famous attorney, uh, Thomas Fitch, I mean, he was probably the most famous attorney in the West. Two decades prior to this trial, he had actually successfully defended president and prophet of the Mormon church, Brigham Young, during his trial over polygamy. He also successfully defended Virgil, Morgan, and Wyatt Earp, as well as Doc Holliday, after the gunfight at O.K. Corral ten years prior. Well, this time he successfully got John Rhodes off as well. As for Ed Tewksbury, he wasn't so lucky at first. He was found guilty after a deliberation of two days by the jury. But unfazed, his attorneys appealed on legal technicalities. Apparently, he had never entered a plea deal and nobody caught it. This motion got Ed a second trial and this second trial was dismissed when the jury could not agree on a verdict. After a little over three years in jail for the murder of his last remaining rival, Ed Tewksbury was released. Unbelievably, he was a free man. And there were no more Grams to seek vengeance. And there were no more Tewksburys to avenge. Immediately after the trial, I mean, with his good name cleared, Ed got a job doing what he was good at, rounding up animals for his bosses so that they could sell them. And he did such a good job that he got his employer out of debt, and Ed Tewksbury, his star was rising. Then, in 1897, Ed married an attractive lady named Braulia Lopez. In 1900, Ed even teamed back up with the famous Tom Horn, again, a man who will be getting his own episode for the Roadrunners. Tom had probably, like 100% really, was part of the Committee of 50, and now he and Ed Tewksbury were chasing train robbers and cattle rustlers. They rode 300 miles together through the wild and rocky country of the Tetons, way up in Wyoming and Idaho. They'd get into three pitched gun battles with these outlaws before killing two quote-unquote bad men. Eventually, Ed moved to Globe, where he did, again, what seemingly everyone with a storied past did at that time, and he became a deputy sheriff. Tanner wrote, quote, His reputation, some said, 
was enough to make any desperado think twice before starting trouble. End quote. Jinx Pyle writes of Ed's reputation when he wrote, quote, As a gunfighter with handgun or rifle, Ed Tewksbury had no superiors and damn few equals in the entire realm of the Old West. His temper and nerve, combined with gun-handling skills, put him on par with John Harton or any of the famous Western gunfighters. There are those who would argue that he shot from ambush. Of course he did. He was half Indian, and he was fighting a war. But if a man wanted to meet him head-on, Ed was not a hard man to find. And he never took a backward step from anyone. End quote. In 1904, though, the last remaining member on either side of the Pleasant Valley War, or the graham Tewksbury feud, or the Tonto Basin War, the last man standing was laid down by tuberculosis at age 46. Ed Tewksbury left a young, beautiful wife with four kids. On his deathbed, he would tell his stepmother that he did, in fact, kill Tom Graham. The feud was over. Although, all the way up until 1904, men in Pleasant Valley were still being sniped, killed, hanged, drowned, disappeared. The war may have ended in 1887 or 1892 or 1904. But the skirmishes continued for decades. Jinx even points out incidents well into the mid-20th century, 1940s. Aftershocks. Aftershocks of the bloodiest range war in American history. In 1921... Author and future episode star Zane Gray wrote a novel based on the war called To the Last Man. And despite my wife and I having like over 20 Zane Gray novels, we do not have that one. Or I would have read it. We are chucking it down, though. Well, in the foreword to that novel, Zane Gray wrote, quote, Some of the stories told me are singularly tempting to a novelist. But... Though I believe them myself, I cannot risk their improbability to those who have no idea of the wilderness of wild men in a wild time. End quote. In 2018, a reporter, Matthew Casey, he was the one who wrote the article that told me the town was named Young. He went to Young. I mean, it has 700 people. And there, he interviewed the old-timers, the restaurant owners, and the then-president of the Pleasant Valley Historical Society. At that time, her name was Marilyn Freegard. Casey quotes from her in his article. To me, it's important to save the history of the area, said President Marilyn Freegard. There is more to this community than just the Pleasant Valley War. He writes, but many people will visit to learn specifically about the war, which exploded out of a bitter feud between two families that stole cattle. Well, the Grahams did it, Freegard said. The Tewksburys did it. I mean, I think it's still happening today, but I won't mention any names. 
end all quotes. So this episode you just listened to was originally going to be a Roadrunner exclusive episode. But I decided it's such a great story, like seriously, that it must be heard by all. And I thought I might tantalize some listeners into signing up for the Roadrunner fan club. Because this is the type of content and stories you're missing out on by not being a Roadrunner with us. As I mentioned in the intro, I am in the middle of a series over the Red Renegade of the West. The outlaw known as the Apache Kid. I stumbled upon him during my reading for the forthcoming Apache series. And obviously I just knew I had to cover him. If you're interested in all the goodies that come with being a member of the fan club of the American Southwest, head on over to my Substack and sign up for $5 a month or $50 a year. The link is on the homepage of the website, theamericansouthwest.com. Or you can search Thomas Wayne Riley, The American Southwest, on Substack. After signing up, you'll receive notes in the mail from me, stickers, a coloring book, and plenty of history content. That's the most important part, right? including stories, reads, thoughts, and just amazing episodes like this. If you are in any way connected with someone that would like me to write a screenplay, let me know. I mean, I am a future accomplished novelist after all. I just have to publish something first. If you're a roadrunner, stay tuned for part two of The Apache Kid followed swiftly by an expose of Tom Horn. And then, part three of the Apache Kid. If you're not a roadrunner, well, first of all, you should be, but the long series over the Apache will be out before too long. Thank you all again, and I will be seeing you soon in the American Southwest.